Hello and welcome to episode one of God's Own Scale. Uh, I'm delighted to say for this first episode, uh, I am joined by Per Broden uh, to talk about uh, his Great North War projects uh, and his experiences at the Joy of Six. Um, really honoured to have Per on the show. Uh, he's well known in the Six Mill community uh, through Twitter, the wider wargaming community. So it was a real honour to spend uh, a few hours chatting with uh, Per. Uh, about a common passion. Um, before we go on to the interview, I just wanted to say thank you for all the support uh, I've received for this podcast for episode zero, which was just me wittering away on my own. Um, the number of downloads has really taken me aback. Um, I'm really pleased to see that uh, the podcast has been well received. Uh, thank you to everybody that came to me at the Joyous Six to talk about the podcast and where can they get it and what might be uh, forthcoming in the, in the next few episodes. Um, I will say that I've got lots of plans uh, for the future with lots of different guests uh, to come on the show. I've approached several um, and yet to have uh, a refusal. So um, I'm grateful to them, uh, people that I have reached out to so far um, and that there's plenty more to come. Um, I haven't really settled on a format uh, for the show yet. Um, I'm wondering about whether to include perhaps a news item or um, separate history sections or uh, discussions about rules, etc. I'm sure all of that will come in time, but uh, for now, I'm just going with the flow of uh, of what feels okay and what I might actually uh, enjoy listening to as well. Um, I'm sure you will enjoy the interview with Pear. He's uh, a very erudite and He's an excellent speaker and clearly knows his subject. And hopefully uh, you'll learn one or two things that you didn't know about the Great Northern War, uh, as I did whilst I was speaking to him. So that's enough of me wittering on. Uh, I shall leave it there and then come back to you on the other side of the interview. Thank you. Mademoiselle from Okay then, welcome back uh, to God's Own Scale and I am incredibly privileged, honoured, humbled to say that I have the first guest of the God's Own Scale with me uh, to talk all things six mil and maybe one or two other things and it is Mr Per Broden. Hello Per. Hi, how are you doing, Sean? Uh, nice to invite me. Sorry, I'm, I'm running a little bit late and it was difficult to get hold of me and so on. It's not that I'm pretending to be busy. I've actually been for a change. So, so I, I have had a... So after Joy of Six, I, I, I thought I was going to get a little bit of, of a break from things for a while. But it seems like there was end of school and work, etc. and so on. But uh, really happy we could find this slot. You know, this is about two o'clock in the morning or something. I... Uh, Yes, yeah. at least, at least. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we sound in a similar boat, to be honest, Bear. My uh, my eight-year-old daughter finishes uh, school tomorrow, um, but I've managed to ship her out to uh, uh, my uh, mother-in-law's tonight uh, to give us this opportunity. With us going away on Sunday, uh, she wanted to see her nana before uh, we oh, went excellent. away, so she was quite happy. So we have all night, Bear, through to the, 
the wee small hours. Perfect. All right, let's get going then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So but thanks. Anyway, thanks. Thanks for the. I'm I'm privileged that you have asked me to come on board. I, I'm really excited about this uh, podcast and having started this. And and as I might reveal later on, obviously have a certain interest in in this scale and worked a little bit in it. So so I'm I'm delighted. I'm delighted. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm sure I've seen somewhere that you were given the nickname of the Godfather of Six, something like that. Is that right? Yeah, I thought it was. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, first, I misunderstood it that it was spelled with E, <laughs> but obviously it was with I. But so I, I, you know, well, yeah, I had to take that. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah. Take whatever comes, the, Pat, Take whatever well, comes. Well, I, I tend to yes, yeah. So, so yeah, no, no. I, I've I've done a little bit in it. I, I've I've been dabbling a little bit with six mil in the last. 10 15 years or so really kind of when i came back to the hobby so yes yeah um we were just talking off air actually um that uh you've you've recently appeared as a guest on the meeples and miniatures podcast with uh mike and neil um which uh, for me was an incredible uh interview it was, i know it stretched out over two separate episodes um and I, i'll make no comments on that because i actually enjoyed every single minute of of that cast but uh you i know you went into a lot of the detail of your your gaming history and your past and how you first came into the six mil what what was that experience like talking to mike and neil it was interesting we we had a little chat to start up and then you know when i when i pressed end on this recording it was four hour 27 or something uh uh, (laughs) i don't know it was great because uh i mean what happens in, in this hobby is that uh we we actually get a lot of what I would call friends, you know, in, in the sense, in the in the true sense, you know. But actually, might not hang around with them much, you know, because we live quite far from each other, you know. Uh, and uh, it's really great to kind of meet up and so on. And we 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 have uh, contact through social medium or emails, etc. And so on. But but there is like a, a little bit of brotherhood between some people, and I, I would like to include those two gentlemen into that. So we had quite a, a long and nice discussion and and, and uh, talking about the background and so on, and perhaps it could be useful for someone to perhaps listen to that uh, as well and so on to get the background. I'm not sure we'll cover all that ground again, you know, because it would be no. uh, a very long night. So there you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely heartily recommend anybody to go and, uh, listen to the Meeples and Miniatures podcast, not just for the interview with yourself, but their whole back back uh, catalogue of podcasts. It's um, it's certainly um, accompanied me through many a lonely hour painting in my office as I as I've listened to them talk about whatever subject it is that they're going on about. And, and the podcast with you, pair has almost directly led to tonight, to be honest, because certainly I've been one of those people in the background, a lurker almost, who has followed your work over the years with your productions at the choice six and salute and admired them from afar but never really got any sort of detail or 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 questioned you about your motives and i hope that's what today or tonight can can bring out yeah yeah, that sounds sounds deep i like it yeah 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 deep Perfect. I may disappoint you with the deepness of this. Yeah, well, I, I have to. I have. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe I will surprise you then. Yeah, never know. Never know. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Um, okay, so um, the Joe Six is it's a couple of weeks yeah, ago now, yeah. isn't it? A couple of weekends ago, we were both there. We we talked. I saw your. I think I describe it as the pièce de résistance uh, of of the show. It's it was really a highlight of that show for me, and that's not to put down anybody else's efforts because 
there were some tremendous games there, but I felt like I got that connection because I'd followed your development of the game uh, over Twitter, and you, you're very, uh, you've got a, a great presence on Twitter and uh, social media to show the development of these games. But before we talk about the Joy Six just gone, I wonder if you could just take us back to the first Joy Six and what inspired you to attend that and put on your first extravaganza and then over the subscript years you've you've followed that on at each show i think you put a game on as every joe six that there's been well there. no yeah well since i've well since 2012 i think uh, i think i think yeah. that was the third joe of six and I, I went to the second it was my first time i went up right and uh it was yeah. in uh or oh, it slips me now but basically in a, in a smaller venue that was what I remember with that was it was smaller and also it was got very hot there. I remember one year I had a I made a river uh, with some kind of uh, transparent material that just ended up melting in there. So it was, it was but it looks very very realistic, of course, because it was now liquid. Yeah. Oh, so okay. uh, so I, I, yes. and it was a little bit boring then, you know, when when I when all the kind of static grass then of course ended up on the top and then then kind of. Next time I took out the board, it, it looked a little bit like something else. But never mind. So, so I went there in uh, 2011, and uh, I had uh, I had bought these miniatures uh, uh, from Peter, and I hadn't really got going. You know, I, I bought all the miniatures needed for Poltava in 20, no, 2009 or 2010, and I put that wow. table on two weeks ago. Yeah. So obviously. I, I've done a few tables in between, so I perhaps used some of the figures and so on. But that just tells you a little bit about the kind of the lead mountain journey we we have going here. I mean, my my better part occasionally reminds me about that I actually have stuff already when I buy new things. But 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 anyway, so I went to Joy of Six because I'm kind of interested in it, but I hadn't really got going yet. And and uh, when I went there, I had a there was a big table. And it was War of the Roses put on, and it was amazing. It was quite a big, long table. You know, I, I don't know how many feet long it was. It must have been at least 20 feet long. And there were all these uh, War of the Roses armies kind of bat bashing down the hill towards each other. It's like in a valley in the middle or something like this. I know, I know that game. It was um, it was the Battle of Towton. The, the blog is still available, actually, called the Rather Large Towton project i think it was called there's something like twenty thousand. yeah and, and the guy who who run it his name is rurig dale and he's uh he's an expert on berserkers i think uh and uh yes, you can find some is, he's yeah. written a fantastic essay i think if you look for for berserkers and i i, I being kind of a little bit of of origin from up north the true north sorry if anyone takes offense to that but but i call it the true north uh we have uh have a little bit of an interest in berserkers and so on. It basically talks about berserkers in games, in in literature, etc., and so on. And it's very interesting. I follow him on yeah. Twitter, and and he occasionally puts some interesting stuff out. But anyway, that was one of the inspirations for that. It was massive, you know. Uh, and uh, you know, again, it had this. The, the appeal with it, of course, is that it was all the kind of the commands, and it basically, to me, looked like a big table. Uh, and um, there was Dan Hogson as well, who did he done the Star Wars this year, the Star Wars uh, Attack on Hoth, yeah. Yes, yes, I've and seen that. Yeah. He came there and uh, in 2011, and he had like a, a presented some colonial stuff he had done, 
and they were like Sulu Sulu stuff, and uh, it, that was fantastic. And the terrain was was very kind of amazing. I think they were running some uh, Peter Riley, who again, you know, and this this is how how small this world is. We all I feel a little bit like this 1950s pop acts that used to travel around the states. You know, Elvis Presley and and all the other greats. You know, they were all touring together. You yeah. know, uh, then basically. So Peter Riley he was running some games with his stuff. Peter Riley wrote the Polymos uh, Colonial Rules, and I think that I haven't been published, but he was trying them out or something. And and that stuff was to me was amazing because what it had wasn't just the, just the greatness of the. So, so the Tauton table was was great, big and massive, and the miniatures were great, but the terrain was was I would say was okay. Yeah. But it wasn't as as dance terrain yeah. was a step higher than that, so to speak. It kind of made the figures blend into it, you know. And to me, yeah. I saw the light is wrong to say, but it is this this importance of of when you present the wargame table. But now now we're talking at the show table. Well, I'm not talking about what you and me might play on a you know Saturday afternoon when we meet. You know, we have two hours to play a game. I'm not talking about this. Now I'm talking about what I'm doing, and I'll talk about that later when we talk perhaps about what I want to do at a six, I, I kind of want to wow myself, yeah, okay, and that is that is what it's all about. I, I'm like, yes. I have a friend who is a plasterer, and he says to me that when he does plastering, he wants to wow himself because he says he's already gone beyond what any other person might say is okay. Uh, so therefore, I'm I'm kind of. Some people say to me that I get, you yeah. know, so I'm disappointed with the Poltava table. There's a few things I don't like with it, yeah when I put it out, but overall I'm happy and I'm not saying that in some kind of false kind of modesty. I know it looks good, and I, you know, in that sense. I, I know it's kind of good enough, but it's just taking that step. But mm. Dan's train was very much, he basically runs a painting service now called Reveil Painting Service or something. I think he does, and, and uh, you know, it's really worth checking him out. He has a lot of presence on Facebook, I think, not on Twitter. Yes, yes, I've seen his. Yeah, exactly. And, and he does a lot of Calistra stuff recently. Uh, and he has a big, you know, like gaming room or whatever that he does his stuff is. But the, it, it was just that that immersion that he gives to it with, with the six mil, you know. And I, I think for me, that is what is interesting. And And again... You back you to was saying about a joy of six. There's a variety of tables there, and it's really, to me, that's what is great with the show that it shows different types of tables. You know, there are tables that are achievable in the sense that you buy a little bit of terrain. There's a lot of was a lot of six millimeter terrain sellers at the show, and you can buy this ready-made terrain and you can kind of set it up, etc. Then you can people like myself, where you know. Who makes a 16 feet mat, you know, like for 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 one battle that I probably put out two or three times, and then that's going to be in my garage for the rest of my life. I mean, that's just stupidity, yeah. But I love it. No, no, but you know what I mean. So I'm I'm not. But at the end of the day, that's what I like, you know. That's what I that that's what kind of gives me a buzz, you know. I can roll out, you know, a, another table. But but if everyone was had the tables I was doing, then Joe Six would perhaps show a unrealistic side of the hobby, you know, because it took me three years to come up to what I call the crescendo of this towards Moscow yes. project, which is the Poltava table. But, but anyway, so when I was there on this first Joy of Six, if you go back a little bit, I already uh, tangented myself away for it. I but forgive you. That, thanks. I, I kind of got this feeling, and I, uh, the way I remember it, and 
you know, if, if you talk to Peter, maybe he says it's different. But I kind of decided there and then I was going to do something next year. And I think I told Peter Berry then, or maybe I did in a conversation shortly afterwards, that I was going to put something on. Because I thought to myself, because I've been dabbling and trying, but if I had like a, a deadline, then I would do it, yeah? And I chose for the first battle uh, was for, for the Great Northern War, uh, which I already kind of bought the miniatures for. But I wanted to do a... a a battle where the Swedes won, and that seemed interesting, you know, to to do uh, in the sense that it had a it was a good battle and reasonable to do. So I, I chose a battle called uh, Fraustadt, and it was and it was basically a decisive battle of the first part. Sorry, the second part, yeah. I would say, before the the events that I kind of describe later on in where Poltava is the culmination. But it, but there is. I'll go through later, perhaps a little bit about the Great Northern War, yeah, a little bit of a summary, yes, maybe. But I did that table, and that became a, a eight feet wide table, uh, eight by four. Uh, to be honest, it's quite a, you know, to me, it's a, a perfect, really perfect yeah. space to do a, a proper six millimeter battle. I, I feel to me that that that's really the optimal. I've done twelve and sixteen the last time, but that was a little bit of a of an extreme but basically i wanted them to try to recreate something that that i see dan do basically and, yeah. and so so what occasionally i've mentioned a few times that he is my kind of inspiration so and, and, and he is for that first table and then following on from that but so what i wanted to do and basically fraustadt happened it's been snowing and it was snow on the ground when the battle was so it was became a winter table and uh, i then realized that you know, how do I do winter tables? And I realized that what I do is I no, do a normal table first rather than try to paint it white. I actually did a, a table that had static grass that was brown first, all the layers on top, and then I actually then dry brushed it white first, and then I added some snow to it, yeah? Ah, that's interesting. So um, it, it was the ground before the snow fell, and then you've added the snow effect on top. Exactly. So that means that where the snow kind of shines through, it looks like there is something happening there. Now, I didn't do it as a hunky-dory kind of very greenish thing. I used some subtle kind of uh, colors to make it look like the kind of, at least in my imagination, yeah? You know, to, yes. to something to look like that. And I, I realized that that was the best way to do that. But this was after having a little dilemma whether I would do the table or not, because... I'm now going to embark on, on in the, uh, at this time, on a major project where I'm going to, I don't know how many bases, there were maybe like four, 50 bases or something in total needed, yeah? Yeah. And I'm going to make them snowy, which, which meant that really is that there are one more battle in the Great Northern Wars that is fought during snow conditions, yeah? So first I, I had some, I talked to some friends and they said to me, well, just do Fraustadt and do it, you know, just do winter so summer bases yeah and you can reuse yeah. them and so on and I, I remember thinking about it one night i couldn't really sleep and then i thought why am i going to try to do a battle and if i'm not going to try to make it look like it looked on the day yeah so I, yeah. that's when i then started and remade them all into these winter bases because that's a big commitment isn't it? you're going to paint those figures yeah um and then potentially limit 
in your eyes the use now yeah. as you say friends might say to you well it doesn't really matter what the bass like but i think we're from a we're, we're singing from the same hymn sheet pair because that would bother me as well well it, well it's a little bit like you know you do and it's back to my friend who's the plaster yeah he plasters at home he will do it perfectly and you say well no one can see that it's done it but he will see that it's not perfect yeah so 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 it's that but i mean the, this is perhaps Perhaps there is some kind of psychological problem with that, but but for me, I I don't suffer from it. You know, I, I quite enjoy it, so I, I think that's okay. But but I then decided to to so I did all the bases, and what was great was that I and, and I find this to do a project for me. It is that to have uh, I find a battle that interests me, but then you have to find sufficient information and literature. And there was a at the time, uh, well. I guess he wouldn't be upset if I said it, but obviously he's, he's aged. But there was a young doctoral student in Sweden called Oskar Sjöström, and he had written a book called Fraustadt. And it was basically a book about the battle, and he had a, basically all the information you needed. It's one of those books that wasn't written for war gamers, but was perfect, because it had the, yes. all the troops that were there describing what order they were standing. There was even a map in the middle showing you know the battle. Not What you get sometimes general histories is... It's a little bit fragments of, of stuff, and it's not really at the level you want to have the information to do your war games project. And I find that sometimes a little bit frustrating. And then you get the the more specific ones. You, you might buy an Osprey and so on, which are great, but sometimes limited. And sometimes, to be honest, sometimes written by people who perhaps are not necessarily using the sources that are current. You know, So yeah. I don't want to mention any examples because I think 90% of them are great, but some of the books I have haven't really had that accuracy in them or based it on, on kind of strange information. But this book was great and I used it and it was written in a fascinating way. There is a, there is a lot of great literature in Sweden, academic one about the Great Northern War, of course, because it is, Sweden is, is, is the main kind of player or the main victim. Uh, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Uh, so, so basically, I had this book, and I used that book uh, to do the battle and to get the descriptions. And and also what I then started to, to derive, actually, the battlefield itself, I, I tend to study what happens in the battle, because that then decides how you set your table up, if you want to kind of recreate it. Because you, you want to create a, a battle that not just describes what actually happened, but you want to add some features to it. So when you read it, where, for example, some actions were happening. So if they talk about a hill, then you need to perhaps have the hill because it's nice to point at the hill to say, look, at that hill they were fighting, you know, at some point, even yes. if the actual game doesn't take you there. But but it is just to kind of read up as much as possible and get this kind of key point. So for Fraustadt, for example, it was basically a line of, of Saxons and a few Russians. There were a support corps, if you wish, who, who came to line up but they misjudged the actual uh, the length they had between two villages. So therefore it ends up, instead of being a straight line, it becomes this kind of bent line, if you wish, where, where it kind of goes in 90 you know, degrees, like a line that goes straight, you know, straight and then it bends and then yep. it goes again, just to be able to fit people on kind of a line, but it becomes a step line, yeah? And okay. and it's on all the all the stuff from that era and so on. And I I've seen a few people who've done Fraustadt without it, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? You know, it's, it's so that thing. So to do that, you have to then take the frontage of your figures and calculate. So if that happens, you you have to make sure that that is a feasible way that you end up. So for me, it became 
what is the total frontage of my figures and how would that setup work? And then basically that then determined. Yeah. So once I knew that distance, I put my two villages there on the table because a lot of games, obviously, the, the frontage uh, relationship to real distances is, is vague, yeah? But yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. so for me it's important that so that's why I'm not sure if you follow my stuff sometimes I always make these kind of maps of the battle you know and I try to kind of illustrate where things go and so on and I work quite hard with it trying to visualize where things go put that on on uh, at uh, Joy of Six yeah and I worked with it you know in my own pace etc but I managed to get it done I took it there and I have to admit I was quite overwhelmed with the feedback I got from it you know. So yeah. and that really then spurred me further, you know, in that sense, because we had such a great time. Uh, but uh, as I said on the Meeple's podcast, I, I forgot one thing while I was preparing for the table. And that was the fact that I hadn't really thought about playing the game. Yeah. So I got so much into <laughs> doing the, all the figures and stuff. So I realized that I, I don't really know these rules. And I, I'd based yeah. them for this Polymos set, and uh, I looked through them, and, and uh, I'm kind of, I like trying things out, you know, like, and, and to learn a game and so on, and I'm I'm in the middle of producing this stuff, and, and I realized I, I didn't really, I read the rules, and I, I thought, gosh, I, I won't have time really to to deliver this, you know, in a, in a a with a straight face, you know, because people are going to come and play to this table, so that's why I, uh, Nick Dorrell, who who's been doing these tables with me since, yeah, uh, he he actually wrote the rules, and I, I I basically asked Peter Berry how I could contact him. Now I've been in contact with Nick indirectly before because on some forum he he answered some questions. You know, I had asked some questions about uh, the pike versus musket ratio and so on. And Nick is one of those guys who is helpful. So instead of just telling me that it's one in three you know, for the Swedes, and one in yeah. six for the Russians. He wrote like a two-page essay about it. That's nice. No, I, I, I'm joking. I mean, it's brilliant. It's exactly what you want. But but it was, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of, so so I kind of knew that, that Nick was passionate about things. And uh, so Nick and, and the Wild Foresters, let's not forget that it's not just Nick. It is the chums that he brings every time with him who actually helps us run these games. So I, I kind of come up from, I live uh, outside London and I travel up to Sheffield and they come from the wire forest. And yes. he kind of runs runs the games. And I, as I said, by default, I've, when I learned the Polymos rules, he then told me that he's now started this new set called the Twilight of the Sun King. So we then started playing those uh. a few years back. And what is fascinating is that the example scenario in those rules is Fraustadt. Uh, which is which is okay. the battle we did, but we didn't we never played it with with those rules. Oh, right, okay. But but uh, I'll come to that later because there is there is some some plans for next Joy of Six and and well I say it now we're basically going to I'm going to tart up the old Fraustadt table. I'm going to take it to Joy of Six next year for two reasons. First of all, I kind of I want to I I want to give it a little bit of a shape. Perhaps a, a few improvements on the table, and uh, that I felt the first time around, uh, I made a few what I would say mistakes, and I, I just want to rectify those so, so that table is good enough to to put up with with the kind of current level. Yeah. Uh, and and basically, so there and then we decided with Nick they will do. Let's try another one, yeah. And uh, so we did then Cliss of 
following year. Klisov is, is summer, so just had to redo all the figures. <laughs> just a simple matter of having to pay Well, exactly, again. because yeah. and I think that if I would have done Fraustadt uh, without the snow basing, I probably would have ended up with, uh, you know, only needing to do maybe 40% of the figures. But of course, having done that decision, yeah. so, so I basically have Saxon Army in Great Northern War, most regiments in both summer and winter basing. Wow, that is commitment. Well, it is, and it's it's fun, you know, it's fun, and and we started a is can you call it a tradition? But me and the little one, we played a, a winter battle over Christmas, and we had a vote whether the Swedes would beat the Danes or beat the Saxons. So, uh, so we had okay. the Saxons this year, and they, uh, sorry, the Danes <laughs> next year. Saxons for dinner. Yeah. Oh, Danes for dinner. Right. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, so. Uh, so we did Klisov, and at Klisov we had uh, Henry Hyde came up from uh, when he was running Battle Games. Uh, so, no, it was actually yes. it was miniature war games with Battle Games, I think, at the time. Uh, and he okay. took, yeah. yes, he came up from Brighton. He was there, and and the first time I met him in person, and now he's a great friend. Now had a had a few yeah. uh, funny episodes with with him, and my, my son is a great fan of. Henry, so probably greater than me. Yeah, yeah I followed this actually. There's a it was a, a book a absolutely book exchange yeah. took place. Yeah, so I thought that was incredible. Henry is one of my hobby heroes, so uh, um, I'm absolutely thumbs up for Henry. And uh, glad to hear that uh, you're good friends with him. He's he's a he's an absolute fantastic chap. I've never actually spoken to him in person, um, but uh, oh, he's a bit too shy, I think, to go and tap him on the shoulder and say. Uh, I'm a big fan, Henry, but uh, yeah, he's uh, the yeah, stuff he's, he puts a, out he's, he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, you know, he's a credit to the hobby, as they say. And uh, so, so basically, yeah. Henry came. You know, I had a chat with us. Yeah, I explained a little bit about what we were doing and the Northern War. Henry is a little bit of a tricorn fan as well, so uh, that kind of helps. And uh, a few months later, I, I bought the magazine, and I realized that oh gosh, there are some six millimeter miniatures on the cover I, I recognize. <laughs> you thought I know them figures. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and of course he had taken a picture of, of uh, some of the Swedish infantry when they were advancing towards the, the Saxons and he managed to get the two uh, bases where I've forgotten to properly paint the pikes in picture and also we had we had used some really bad labels as well on them which is when I said about Things that are kind of gradual over the years trying to get rid of is too much visible non kind of terrainy stuff but anyway uh, that that's just yes. that side of me speaking rather than the rational side I got really happy with it and I, and I remember uh, yeah. basically calling the the magazine and I didn't know that it was Henry sitting in Luftwaffe basically doing it but I, I thought I, I called to some big uh, magazine place but basically someone answered and then they gave me Henry's phone number and I, I, I thanked him. I, I thought that was great. And and Peter Berry tells me it's this it wasn't the first time, but the second time his miniatures were on a cover of a war games magazine. Apparently the first time was a, a American Civil War picture. Uh, so so I wasn't the first, but at least it felt that was that was brilliant. It was kind of one of those very funny moments yeah. because I, I wasn't expecting to see it. It's a landmark moment, I think, isn't it, for 
for yourself putting in all that effort and then suddenly to see it on the front of a glossy magazine says yeah this has been appreciated and it's going to be seen by so exactly so i mean it that gave that me a magazine. kick you know in that sense and uh then uh, uh we we also wrote up a little uh article mainly uh, nick did on uh, on the battle itself and we got that published as well on that basis uh then we what did we do next we then did uh, we did battle of gadabush as well we've done which is 1712 that was actually another wintry table but this time there were swedes versus danes so we had to do danes in winter uh, basing uh, and then we we redid some of the swedes because this was this is a later battle where a lot of the swedish battalions no longer had pikes so we had to do a new battalion in winter with without we i say me uh, we had to do bases with uh, without pikes and again because you know no one would know the difference but me so that's that's why so and then we also did another battle called uh, well, we did a battle of Carlis, which was 1706 in between. Uh, the reason we did that was to have done a lot of uh, Polish cavalry. And, and Polish in the Great Northern Warrior, they're basically very similar to kind of Renaissance Polish. So they basically look a little bit like a old-fashioned army, you know, in the sense that they have the winged hussars okay. and they have this panzerni and, and uh, a lot of light uh, cavalry. And uh, Carlis battle is one of the kind of you know, big, because basically you have Polish, there's a Polish civil war at the time, so you have Polish on, on each side. And I just think it looks so majestic, a, a Polish yeah. army in this, this era. So I just, yeah. just went crazy on that as well. Winged Hars are amazing, aren't they? I don't think anybody, there's nobody that doesn't like winged Hussars. Exactly, exactly. And uh, there are some debates whether they had wings or not, etc. But uh, in, in my imagination, they do. So... Uh, and, I, and I'm in control of that table, so they, that, that worked well. Your version of history. Well, exactly. Now, right? I mean, you know, yeah, I, I can debate it with someone wants to. If they have some proof, they can always do that. So I'm kind of, I'm lighthearted when it comes to these things. Uh, I do as much as I can keep to, you know, the historical sources. And when I do have uniform information, I tend to use it. Well, I not tend to, I will use it. But there is yeah. a lot of blanks, and sometimes... You know, you can perhaps allow a color or two that perhaps it, you could argue whether it's realistic or not. But but sometimes you you want to create something that look looks a little bit fun too. Uh, and, and then we yeah absolutely. I think then we had one year where Nick had a, another engagement, so we were not going to do a Great Northern War. He he couldn't do Joy of Six, so I decided to do something different. And that's when we. This idea came that was basically based on on something that they talked about on the meeples and miniatures so of using six millimeter miniatures to play saga and uh, I basically went a little bit crazy with that because i had a had a few uh of the dark age Bacchus stuff that I just basically bought when it came out because I thought it looked cool, but i did, hadn't done anything with it, so it was just in those. Yeah those famous zip bags, yeah? And then I thought that maybe you should yes. try this saga because I tried it, you know, with 28mm miniatures and I like it and, I, you know, I, it wasn't like a, a mission to kind of do that initially. I really liked the game and then I thought maybe I could uh, use these miniatures I had 
and it, it, it's uh, it, it became quite a big project. So I did all the f the factions that ex were for the Age of Vikings uh, supplement. I think there were ten or twelve uh, factions you could do. I also made a starter army for each of these in in six millimeter. Yeah. Basically, one base, twenty five millimeter square, with between four to I think ten miniatures replaces one miniature. So you have a your warlord is basically a a, a hero with his kind of gods or or his uh, retainers, if you wish, with him. So he's basically in effect a a ten man base. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, you only have one of those. Whilst uh, your uh, life, those other that in in the traditional games are your bodyguards. They are more kind of your elite warriors, and they are you know basis of stuff and if you go to uh, I have I have my blog is called roller1.com and if you search for that and then you do saga in six millimeter you'll find that stuff it's uh, I've done quite a lot of postings about it there's one about the second version of the rules I, I had a little bit of a move-in party with the new rules we had a few beers and tried those over a week and it was great oh. fun so we played a few games uh, of that after that as well uh, uh, for me it's it's a i think it's a great game it's so different to a lot of the games i play which are more serious and and it is it's like a, a french lord if you with me so it's uh, I, I find that saga and our studio tomahawk is the kind of french version of two foot lord is in in a way because but, yeah but i think i think they have a similar approach to it it's 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 serious to some level, but it's actually it's about well it is ser very serious I would say, but it's actually developed also to be playable and to have fun you know and and I think that's important so it's it's not doesn't need to take away seriousness in how you approach the subject but but actually having fun as well and I I think that's important. I think it's getting I think it's getting that bit where the history yeah. is right, but. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't have exactly. an enjoyable game. Exactly. I, I think you're right, and, yeah. and I think that's important to me because what happens invariably in a lot of games that are in kind of deal with the 18th century, I tried a few rules, and and some of them like, some I don't. But it, it tends to you very rarely find kind of that kind of at least on the on the mass battle side those rules that are really talking to you in a funny way, you know, or, or kind of yeah. And uh, I think perhaps that is something yeah, for some yeah. people to perhaps catch on to it's one about being loose and rigid and a, a you know black powder for example you read that that is a you know do what you like with it but it it doesn't really touch to me that kind of nerve that i think the lord is doing studio tomahawk to be honest in that level yeah don't saying there are better or worse games but it's just a certain yeah, rhythm to it Never, yeah so so we did saga then we also have done some one year, my I took a, a game of uh, what's called Dragon Rampant to Dwarf Six. Yeah, that's when we did the first table. So the idea was that uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick and the Wild Foresters would run the first part of this towards Moscow, and I'll run this fantasy game because we had booked two tables already that year. We had a game that didn't happen, but it ended up my my son who I don't know where he was in nine or eight he basically knew the rules enough so he basically running it there yeah with whoever was available and and uh, so therefore i was kind of floating about so 
so what we then what we then set out to do the last few years was that we we developed some this concept of towards Moscow trilogy, and it is the last part. And maybe now it's time to actually talk about this Great Northern War. Yeah. So please. what what the, what the Great Northern War is? So so it's basically the end of Sweden as a great power in that region of the world. Yeah. At least when it comes to landmass, etc. So basically, Sweden kind of develops over the years and and has a plays a role in the Thirty Years' War. We know about Gustav Adolphus. Then a little bit uh, interestingly, you know, when when he then dies, you know, his his uh, daughter Christina, Queen Christina, she abdicates and and goes down and becomes, you know, a devout Catholic down in Rome, having had you know her father being one of the key commanders on the Protestant side in 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 a devastating war over Europe is quite kind of ironic to some degree that oh, okay. that his kind of offspring, if you wish, doesn't yeah. really then follow what the course that he has followed, yeah. But 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 never mind whether that was kind of religious belief that actually was behind the, that he was fighting there or not, or whether there was more kind of more uh, simple economical reasons is of course a, a debate we can have somewhere else. But 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 it is during this era, obviously Sweden, as part of the, the peace treaties, etc., gets some possession uh, possessions. Then the the person who then takes over, uh, which is Charles the Tenth, uh, after Christina, he is, uh, if you wish, a great warrior king as, as well, and he gets uh, additional land, and he also gets uh, possession over something called Skåne or Scania, which is uh, another part of Sweden, which is then ah, that's where that fits in, then, is it right? Okay, absolutely. So basically. And that is through this is called Togetter Stora Belt, which basically he walks over the ice into Denmark and uh, beats the Danes. And and we have had historically we've been fighting, I don't know, for with the Danes for up to, to up a few hundred years. So we were fighting with the Danes on and off for about five hundred years. Yeah, so they they're kind of the arch enemy in, in the in the old kind of uh, traditional wow. Sweden. So traditionally, the southern part of Sweden that that. That part yes. has, has been fought over quite a lot, and, and a lot of the southern counties as well. Uh, and uh, what, what really happens is that, so, so you have Charles X, he then basically hands over a, a kingdom, he dies early, and his son is four years old when he dies. And of course, you have then a, a collection of nobles that then start running the show, you know, together with the uh, Queen Mother. And... Uh, Basically, the the nobles gets a lot of rights and uh, etc. And the Swedish perhaps defense of this empire that's been amassed during these years isn't really kept up to the the level that is required. And uh, the Danes, who have lost obviously Scania, they then uh, starts hostilities again. And and in a very sh- short summary, what happens is that Charles the Eleventh. Uh, he he basically has to start his reign defending this south part of Sweden, and that is called the Scanian War. And uh, basically, the the Danes come onto what is now traditionally the the Swedish mainland, and uh, very quickly kind of takes over, you know, cert, certain of the fortifications. 
and it becomes clear that the king wins the war, but it is quite a costly war, and it's quite a, a big realization that he's not really uh, doesn't really have a state that is strong enough to to kind of to defend itself. And uh, it's really during his era that this the, the kind of the this the the might that Charles the Twelfth is able to kind of throw at at his enemies at the beginning of the Great Northern War is built up during this era. And he's known as the, the Grey Coat because he Gråkappan as we called him, because he used to travel around Sweden incognito and then show up, you know, at various kind of regiments and so on and do inspections and also to kind of see the lay of the land and he was kind of work a hard worker, you know, in that sense. So so obviously at the battle of yeah. some of these battles in the Scania War, he was very young, and he just a few years before he was described. This is Charles XI as you know, someone who hardly dared to speak, etc., and so on. And then he really, you know, steps forward, you know, and and grows up during during that war to that degree. And and a lot of the famous warriors, if you wish, of of that era, they are very young men, and they serve with with uh, with him during this time. So a lot of famous historical Swedish names, you know, that comes up in, in later wars are either the same people or they are the sons of these these heroes, if you wish, from a from a kind of traditional kind of little bit uh, boy boyish kind of dreamy perspective. I mean some of them were perhaps not heroes in that way. You know, they might be quite cruel individuals. But but you know what I mean. Yeah. Absolutely. And and basically he then builds up this military might, but then he dies at the end of the seventeenth century. And uh, his uh, his son is is very young. Well, he's teenager uh, Charles the twelfth. They liked the name Charles, didn't they? Yeah. Well, they 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 all of them. And and I think they the first Charles isn't there is no Charles the first or second or third. And so I'm not I, I don't remember what the first Charles we had, but they felt it didn't sound too impressive to be called Charles the kind of low number. Oh, okay. So <laughs> they started on a later number. Oh, yeah. So okay. that's interesting. So. Uh, but I, I don't know if you know, but in these, yeah, I mean, up to quite, you know, you would think a few hundred years ago, you know, well, maybe to the kind of 16th, 15th century, they would still write kind of genealogy kind of about kings going back to the Bible and stuff, wow. you know. They still invent all this stuff, you know. I mean, so what I'm saying is that there were very much, there was, you know, branding in those times, so we call it today. Yeah. Yeah? So you kind of write up a story. I mean, it's like uh, when... Uh, the famous Swedish vodka, Absolute, for example, yeah. was invented sometimes in the 1980s, but still they used some old logo. You know, I think the guy who was the head of the advertising agency is the guy you can you used to be able to see on the label that looks like some Swede for 100 years ago. Oh, yeah. okay. It was just his silhouette, yeah. yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so, so I mean, obviously kept that going. But so when Charles Twelfth dies, basically Sweden now has these southern parts of, of Sweden, which the Danes see as their rightful thing. The reason, of course, the Danes are interested in, in this part is simply because it gives them control of getting into the to that region, the seaway. Yeah? So if you control both Öresund and, uh, sorry, over the, the waterways into the Baltic Sea. Yeah. Yeah? So basically, if you have both sides of that, you basically able to control that right. and, and they still managed to retain a lot of that toll for a long time the Danes and are making a lot of money from it also the Scania is a wonderful part of Sweden in the sense that it, it produces a lot of meat and a lot of you know 
wheat yeah. and meat. And uh, so therefore, and also at the time, the Danes had a lot of the quite important like church administration, etc., up in that region. So they were kind of keen to get it back. They saw it as theirs, yes. and it was theirs traditionally and historically. Now, if you look at a modern map, you kind of can see why it's kind of not a natural border, really, to have you have this where Denmark sits, and then you you have this other landmass over the the water, so to speak. Yeah. So, so, so I, I think it was bound to kind of end up that one way or another. But of course, there there is another big player in the region, and that is the we haven't talked about, but that is Russia. Yes. And and this is the era really of Peter the Great, and uh, he's also in a situation where Russians are a little bit tied with the Swedes because we have a lot of possessions in, and he basically doesn't have the ability to do trade in, in the way he would like. And also we have Poland. Uh, Poland is it basically has a king, and the king of Poland is a guy called Augustus the Strong. Not great, but strong. Okay. He was good bed, bend things, etc. <laughs> Did and, he choose and, that himself? Or does he have a, uh... Well, it, it, there's also another version where he says that he's the kind of, he had a lot of, uh, apparently a lot of children with a lot of ladies, etc. Uh, that he okay. he paid for, but I'm not sure whether it's legendary or not. So I'm I'm kind of uh, I hadn't really I've heard both ways, but it's an interesting story. Yeah. Partially, this is clouded by the fact that we had a a few famous Swedish journalists who used to write histories as well that I kind of read when I grew up, and and I now in retrospect kind of realized that some of them did a little bit of adventurous invention. Uh, they were quite they creative. Had. Exactly. Yes. So the, the, there is, and everyone that have read them knows who I mean, so I'm not, but I'm not going to libel them in any way. But no. uh, th- there is, uh, but they were good reading though, and it, it, it provoked a lot of history interest, and, and maybe there was like spot the, spot the mistake they were doing, I, I don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the Russians anyway, they, they had this, uh, and also Augustus the Strong, so basically all these three uh, they were part of this coalition, if you wish, that that decided that now it was enough. We had enough of Sweden. They have now a young king. And basically, so the Denmark attacked some of the possessions we had in northern Germany. And then uh, the, the Russians and the Polish Saxon, if you wish, started attacking some of the possessions we had in those regions where they, they wanted to have prominence. And also at the time, you have to remember that Finland and Sweden was one country. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, I didn't know that. So, I didn't yeah, know. so so Finland and Sweden, Finland wasn't like a colony of Sweden. Finland and uh, in in that sense, for me, I'm half Finnish, half Swedish, and and maybe some people don't share this view, but to me, I see it as one country at the time. Yes, yeah. there was perhaps a a Swedish speaking elite that dominated, you know, Finland to some degree, and perhaps oppressed the, the Finnish speaking population, and and I get that and so on, but. The way I look at it was that it was one country. Then we yeah. lose, of course, Finland in uh, as part of the Swedish Empire in in the early 19th century to Russia, right. and then then uh, Finland and another hundred years later sees this wonderful opportunity called the Russian Revolution, where Russia is totally in in a mess, uh, and and would be actually for for. Well, still is, you could argue. Some some considerable time after. Yeah, exactly. So so the Finns sees an opportunity to declare themselves independent. In Moscow, the proletarian, whatever they, they call themselves at the time, they think, well, let's worry about Finland later. We, 
you know, let them call themselves independent. Then, uh, but basically, the Finns then has managed successfully to be independent now for 102 years. So I think I think we uh, we will stay like that. But it, so so uh, they attack Sweden then at this point, and now it is really where the Charles the Twelfth, who's been traveling with his father, who's who's basically his father, perhaps you. Could, Paranoid is the wrong word, but basically cautious and wanted to prepare his country for this situation. Now, this young boy has been given all this preparedness. You know, his dad has prepared the shed, you know, the lawnmower, everything is sharpened up, you know, and, and it's just ready yeah. to, to maintain this country and defend it. And uh, so he actually is famous warrior king, but he d didn't actually start the war, yeah? But he tries then to defend Sweden, and he does it to the last Swede, unfortunately. So, so, uh, he then starts fighting. First, he goes towards the Danes, and the Danes kind of more or less give up when Sweden land on the shores, and then they are out of the war. That doesn't sound very heroic, but it wasn't. And then, then uh, Sweden then goes over to a place called Narva, which is further to east, and they beat the Russians there. And it's about you know one one Swede against ten Russian kind of in terms of numbers. Yeah. Wow. And it's yeah. a very easy victory for, for Charles. And the main yeah. reason for that is that it's, a, it's an attack uh, that is done, and the Russians are in, in uh, fixed fortifications. And basically, Sweden makes a breakthrough. And then what unfortunately can happen if you're in a defense and you, that defense gets broken is that suddenly numbers doesn't matter anymore. But what manages the kind of momentum, and the Swedes have the momentum, and basically route that whole army in that sense you know so uh, they, yeah. they basically stay in defenses this is what the russians don't do in the devastating 1709 battle where they have a big camp where they are fortified they actually go and stand against the swede and suddenly you have a you know a very long line versus a very short line and and right. it's very difficult to defend yourself in that situation you know when you have mm -hmm. that numerical your flanks are rather exposed exactly but anyway but yeah. because he wins there and of course Peter the Great, he leaves the battle even before it's it's finished. You know, he leaves it before. So Charles kind of doesn't have much uh, respect for the Russians. Uh, it's one version of history. It's very difficult to to understand what really happened in 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 our great king's head. You know, because he mm. he was a little bit not always clear with his plans and so on. But th the common understanding is that he he then says the Danes are out, the Russians are out. Although I haven't crushed them, they're out of the picture, and I will now turn my my attention to the Saxon-Polish uh, problem. And this is Augustus the Strong, yeah. And and he yeah. so he has you know, under his kind of control, if you wish, the Russian, uh, sorry, the, the the Polish, and the Polish are very much this what I said, this Renaissance type of army. So they are uh, very much uh, a mixture of. It looks a little bit like. You know, knights basically. You know, they have chainmail and and stuff like that. Still, uh, some of them, but they also have some uh, European armies. They then then get together. Uh, sorry, they then start fighting the the Saxons and the Polish. But the Saxons always have a sorry have a more traditional European army, the kind of army that that Marlborough would fight against, etc. Uh, so, so what you get is a nice mixture between tricorns and knights, more or less, on on, on the table. But, but basically, it takes the king from 1700 to 1706 to basically 
get a peace treaty in a place called Altranstad, which is a direct consequence of the Battle of Frausch that we called, talked about, yeah? So it's the kind of, that, yes. that's the end of that era. But basically, Charles spends six years fighting about against the, the Saxons. And the Saxons are really, the, there is a, this English uh, phrase, which is uh, fight another day, you know, where you kind of, and, and that is really yeah. what the Saxons do. They're experts at being beaten devastatingly by the Swedes. But they never really get beaten, and they kind of they always come back, yeah. So we have a yes. we have a big battle at Duna, which is basically we we get over a, a, a river, being attacked by the Saxons, and we manage to get out of that. That's in 1701. Then in 1702 is Clisso, which is one we have done at Joy of Six, which is a, a great battle. There is this Polish colorful element, and it's the Saxons. The Saxons they. They ask their servants to to kind of keep lunch on the table, you know. So they they're just going to fight the Swedes and come back. But of course they. Okay, that's a bit confident, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but basically, but there is all these things happening where they kind of they kind of seem to sneak away all the time. Uh, so it takes six years, and then basically, the king now has gone to a position where where basically, Augustus is out of the of the picture. There's actually there's actually a battle that happens. Before, uh, after he signed this peace treaty, but he doesn't tell the Russians. So it's actually a battle where Augustus doesn't tell the Russians that he signed this peace treaty because obviously he's now his mate, Peter the King. Yeah, he doesn't want to tell him that. Look, I signed this peace treaty already. So he kind of he sends a warning to the Swedes and saying, "Look, um, I signed this peace treaty. Uh, just stay away for now, so to speak." And and the, the Swede doesn't believe him, thinks he's, what is this all about, etc. So there's a, there is a quite interesting stories with that. But anyway, having done that, then in 1707, the king decides that now I'm going to go and crush the Russians because the Russians have been fighting about in the peripheries all this time, and he really wants to go and beat them. In his mind, the Russians are easy to beat, etc. I haven't really understood that, uh, sorry, what has happened during this uh, era is that Peter the Great basically has learned his lesson from some of the defeats he have had against the Swedes and basically modernized his army. He has uh, used yeah. to have like Streltsy, uh, which were more the kind of uh, traditional, it's the kind of Russians you can see in basically having these halberds and, and muskets, you know, uh, the, the old style. They were more kind of like uh, uh, a different kind of soldier than than the European kind of type of uh, of kind of doctrine and so on. So basically, what has happened during this time is Peter has built up more or less uh, a, U- a European-based army with a little bit of an edge. So he has a lot of dragoons, for example, which are basically mounted, if you will, in, in in the sense, uh, have a lot of dragoons. They're they're quite quick to produce them, if you wish. Sounds like a computer game, but they are trained in a different way. He also has improved all his kind of infantry are now, you know, better trained, better organized and so on. So basically the the Russians that Charles set out to march, and this is the towards Moscow, so he want to go and take Moscow. And uh, yeah. so the first, well, not the first thing, but some of the things that happen. So there, there are some battles where it goes really well for, for the Swede beginning, but there's a series of unfortunate events and, for example, there's a very bad winter, 1709 to seven. Sorry, 1708 to 1709. There is uh, a situation where some of the supply is coming. 
It's a general called Levenhaupt. He's coming with his supply, and it's a battle of Lesnaya in 1708, which is what we done that at Joy 06. But basically, a lot of the mm-hmm. uh, the Swedish kind of uh, so, some of the artillery, some supplies, etc., being lost because the Russians basically ambushed them. So it's a big, big battle ambush because they have created these what they yeah. call flying columns. The Russians, another of their innovations. So they have they have a mounted infantry that they basically use. So Peter the Great have really modernised. Absolutely, absolutely, and it is it is like uh, so. Charles in the beginning of the war has two things. He has probably the best army of the players and the best trained army because his father has built up this preparedness. And uh, but you know Peter has has the the bigger army at the end of the war and and certainly it can take a blow from the Swedes, yeah, and fight it at least you know. Yeah. In a, if it has a two to one advantage, it can kind of beat the Swedes. Yeah, there must have been a huge manpower advantage uh, for Peter the Great over over the Swedes. Well, absolutely, and as we know, for example, from World War Two, I mean, it keeps coming. You know, if if you can't, you can't kind of, you know, it's it, it's a similar lesson that we learned many times. You know, when it comes, if if you want to fight the the, the Russians, you know, it's it's a bad idea yes. in general. So so what then happens is that the Russians withdraw and they burn stuff. And you might recognize this from other uh, other situations. Uh, and of course, it's a scorcher's policy that they do. Yeah. And the Swedes get gets tougher and tougher for them to get enough supplies. So he decides to go down towards Ukraine, the Swedish king, and, and basically ends up because he thinks he can fill up supplies, etc. down there, continuously trying to get a battle with the with Peter, and he doesn't get the decisive battle. Uh, but then eventually, he decides to go to Poltava. Poltava is a fortress uh, down in what is Ukraine today, uh, and uh, he put siege to that town. And uh, basically, Peter decides to get closer, and there, there's a lot of maneuvering happening. But but he ends up in a situation where their camp is relatively close to the Swedes. And Charles, unfortunately, a few weeks before, gets shot in the foot, so he's wounded. <laughs> yes. But uh, so so adding to all this uh, this misery. But at least that siege have had the desired effect, whether he's drawn the Russians to them. Now he has a quite small army, you know, in terms of a one to three kind of uh, different, you know, on the day. Actually, a little bit more yeah. depending on how you count, but. He still decides that under this situation to basically go and attack the Russians. And that is what then ends up being this Battle of Poltava, which basically... And, and Charles is carried around on... Yeah, uh, he is, he is. And just, exactly. The but, but but in effect, he's, uh, he's not the overall commander of the day, but he's, he's okay. he kind of makes the overarching decision, if you're of direction, which is to go towards the Russians. The Russians basically, it's it's an upmarch to it towards where there is a camp, and the Swedes knows that the Russians has built a, a line of redoubts to kind of protect itself from a Swedish advance. Uh, then they built another set of redoubts that kind of cuts towards the advance, and and the Swedes get taking a little bit by surprise, and it causes them some issues to get through these redoubts. Uh, gets into the main 
where the main battle happens in front of the Russian camps, loses a few battalions on the way, who gets lost in the forest. The Russians really have so big advantage. I mean, you saw that on the day that we had that on, on Joy of Six. The amount of Russians yeah. versus the Swedes. And this is exactly, and this is what I wanted to capture with that table. That the table, the battle can be played. The last part of it on maybe an eight-foot table, but part of the story is that it starts from the Swedish camp. So I wanted to show a camp, and I basically based the camp I had there on the day on a on a typical camp of the era. So again, this is ground scale wise uh, an issue. So at yeah. the ground scale, I could only do what, what in effect was for one battalion to do to have a camp. But I tried to show that, and and this is again to the fact that I talked about Oskar Sjöström, who wrote the book that inspired me on on doing Fraustad. So I I have some some contact with Oskar on on some occasions, and I I've asked him for advice. So he actually gave me drawings from the. Uh, he works as a project manager for the uh, Swedish Army Museum. So I actually could get the accounts he had about what actually tents looked like for the era, which I couldn't find anywhere else. Uh, because obviously no one has yeah. yet put it in a book somewhere. Yeah, We could actually... Because they're quite distinctive, aren't they, the tents that you painted? For yeah. They've sort of got the blue Correct. And we actually have a picture from... There is a picture from how an officer's tent looked like. That is based on a on a drawing that still exists, uh, a design that it says Carolus on top, which is was what uh, Charles the Twelfth signed himself. So he signed that in 1699. So at, at least we knew that yeah. the intentions then was that this is how an officer's tent looks like. So that's why I painted them in the colors I did. Yeah, and that's a, that's the incredible detail that um, to a casual passerby might be missed. Exactly. You know yeah. that. And somebody somebody who's is really interested in the period will recognize that as being absolutely historic. Exactly. Correct. And then also the second problem I had was to do the fortress itself. Now the fortress of Poltava in terms of ground scale I have be a much, much bigger kind of place, you know, because it, it, it basically is, it was like two cities in one with a valley through and there were kind of even a waterways in the fortress itself. Yeah. So again, on the day, I, I built something to try to at least show some of the grandeur of the place, you know, where Buddhist wooden palisade, and I, I filled it with, I don't know, it must be at least 120 quid worth of, of six mil buildings in there, you know. But yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it had exactly that effect, because previously, you know, I've done towns or something, I've done them as a little blog in the corner with four or five buildings. It's a traditional thing to do it in six mm. mil, but I just felt to some degree that this this is like how it needs to be so I, I, I and then i first thought i paint an area gray and put them there and then do but i felt i just needed to do this kind of base if you wish for the buildings which became the fortress itself yeah mm -hmm. and i think that worked really well i mean yeah. i i'm very keen to kind of almost do some kind of six mil skirmish in that little town you know it's 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 really like yes, yeah, that would be great. And uh, with Pikeman's lament. Exa exa like exactly, that. exactly. Yeah. So, so maybe there is some some mileage in that. And and so that's why the Poltava table had to be bigger for me to tell that story because I, I like the fact that you can kind of stand there at the table. And and as happens on these shows, people come and ask. You know, very often I say, "Do you know about the period?" And then I talk a little bit about it. And then you can actually say on the table that yeah, they were here. Because very often when you do 
big bastards yard and then over there if you imagine you know where that other table is mm -hmm. that's where the actual town was that this was named after yeah and uh, yeah. so so really it was kind of partially show off you didn't need that part but what i wanted to do was a table where in the future maybe when i'm retired and i have a week or so you could kind of almost maybe play a game where you play these parts and the maneuvering game before yes and therefore so they just show that that is possible and to be honest although i i pretended to to hate it sometimes but i, I had some fun doing it too to be honest so so it it was <laughs> it was kind of a challenge it looked a labor of love as i said i followed it over over twitter uh and was eagerly awaiting every update that you you put out um but i, I certainly felt your pain when you're just churning out these troops these bases of troops and then um, building Poltava itself and uh, doing the redoubts that you did, this, this very distinctive square redoubts, aren't there? For, yeah, the, the Russian exactly. And, and you feel sometimes the Frank Sinatra sings, you know, regrets I had a few, but too few to remember or whatever. And I'm thinking, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, he's, he's never, <laughs> no, mean? exactly. It's never painted. It's like 206th base. Of of <laughs> of Russians, you know, and, and you know, yeah, yeah, that's real. Exactly, exactly. And you're thinking, no, no, yeah. <laughs> Next time I do it, it's totally different, you know. But 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 anyway, so yeah. so so that's really that that that's where we kind of ended up today with Joy of Six. I've I really seen it grown over the years, and I, I find absolutely an amazing show. And and uh, it is like I don't know. For me, it is it, it's it's. I mean, Peter Berry to me, and I, I said this before, it is, he's a great driver in the hobby. And obviously he has an interest because he what he does. But I, 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 as I always said, it, this, is not a, this is not a Bacchus convention. This is really a six millimeter convention. And I'm, uh, you get, with some exceptions, but you get most of the kind of, what I would call at least 90% of, of the key six millimeter kind of UKs, uh, you know, traders and so on, I would say, are, are represented in one way or another. Maybe I just invented 90%, but it feels like, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you're far off the mark yeah. there. I think there's probably a couple of obvious exceptions yeah. Yeah. Um, that were missing on the day. But uh, you, you're absolutely right that that was, I think that, I, I've talked about this on my blog, actually. I think Joe 6 has an almost unique feel to it. Um, and I couldn't quite put my finger on why that was, because I've, I've travelled the length and breadth of this country, north, south, east and west, and been to shows for 30 odd years in, in this country. And Joe Six has something that I, I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah. As to what the uniqueness is. And uh, the only thing that the only the only unifying factor is that it's six mil. It's a dedicated show to one scale of figure. So there might be. It might represent periods from biblical times, as there was a Egyptian Hittite, uh, Kadesh Egyptians and Hittites, yeah. through to Dan's Battle of Hoth. So, so it's not a period that's um, bringing people together. It's the scale that brings people together, isn't it? Yeah, I agree, and, and exactly. And for me, I mean, someday I, I would like to go and enjoy Joy of Six like a punter, but then I feel like I'm obliged, you know, to bring something. So. You're not allowed to give up yet, Per. No, I, I know, I know. So, 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 it would be nice. Uh, no, I'm joking, but no, I'm not giving up yet. But, I, but, but, what I'm saying is that always when I go there, I find myself, and that's again because one of the the drawbacks, because what I want to try to do, because when I came into the hobby, I I, I enjoyed a lot 
blogs, uh, especially blogs, because it was more more the forum that existed then, perhaps more because you know things like Facebook or Twitter didn't kind of exist, or at least I didn't pick it up until just recently. But I used to read a lot of blogs, and I really liked the. And when I started my own blog, I wanted to give something back, and what I felt was that I'm not selling anything, so I can't kind of. I'm not writing necessarily for someone else, yeah. But I was writing mm-hmm. for things that interest me, but also that I think could be useful for others, yeah. So, yeah. so what I really liked, for example, when you start painting, etc., uh, before you realize that actually, you know, I I have, must have a, you know, I I have so many paints, you know, and and sometimes I bought paints three or four times. I already have those colors, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that you kind of. I remember when I started, someone says, oh, to paint this kind of uh, cavalry, you, you you should use blah, blah, green, uh, brown or whatever, yeah? And yeah. you buy that then, or, you know, buy that color so you can match it. But then as you get more, you know, now I just grab something brownish, you know what I mean? I, I don't have those things, you know, and then if it seems a little bit too dark, I mix some white in it and so on. And But when you first start, you're a little bit kind of, you don't really know you know what you, what color should i use for kind of american civil war confederate jacket yeah but yes. some people in the blog might say oh, i've painted all this by the way in in the bottom here's a list of the paints i used yeah and when you mm-hmm. kind of when you're not kind of too too experienced or perhaps a period or something you want to make it look right and you might not be able to to easily have that eye and so on i felt those blogs were useful when or they told me that for example this is how we kind of I used a little bit of of green, you know, putty or whatever to to yeah. green stuff to to modify this, and this is how I did it. But of course, now I use a lot of these things, and I and I really want to kind of share that with people. And and really, all it is between you and me is that when I do something, I take a few pictures throughout the process, and then mm-hmm. I do some traveling on trains, part of my work, or or I might occasionally stay in a hotel. That's when I do these blog updates. Yeah. And it gives me yeah. a little bit of, you know, things to do. They don't take long. If you noticed on my blog, sometimes I'm very inspired. Sometimes I just show pictures. Yeah, depends a little yes. bit what time I have. But I, I try to get one out every week. But I'm trying to make it in a way so I'm showing what I'm doing. But also, you know, if I can inspire someone or, or tell someone how to do something, then I think that's great. You know, and and I, I, I get enough feedback. You know, on what I'm doing, so I'm kind of keep doing it. And 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 I think that is the kind of uh, a, a side of the hobby which I really appreciate, and and that I really kind of when I came back into it, I could kind of quickly get up to speed. And and YouTube was another one. I think it's very good. Yeah. Because brilliant. Uh, kind of learning techniques, especially painting and so on. Because painting for me is is uh, is tricky painting because I think I I am I have a, that patience, you know in terms of wanting so i can paint for long times but i want to achieve a lot in that time yeah so it is it's yes. always this balance between what is reasonable and what is great and uh, it's it's by default that occasionally i do something that looks good but you know close up but it is it's that that mm-hmm. kind of i'm trying to create something that looks kind of believable on the distance where you stand up looking down on it you know that is my kind of that's my really my main objective and anything else is a little bit kind of not really needed to some degree but it 
but it still needs to kind of have some kind of level of scrutiny to it. So, so I'm just trying to to balance that because I I want to be able to produce as much as possible when I do have time, and I. Uh, yes. But still, that it has some reasonable quality. So, 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 so the great thing with that is kind of studying others and listening to others how they do things. And then, once you learn how someone else does it and it looks good, you can then start kind of working on some shortcuts. You know, so for me, a lot of the shortcut is the fact that I paint in batches. You know, and you you learn. Yeah. So, so for example, I've recently started. So I, I talked previously about the Scanian War, which which is. Charles the Twelfth, so Charles the Eleventh War, which I'd never heard of. Pair, I've got to admit, I'd, I'd heard of the Great North War, Northern War, and I, I knew what sort of era it was, and sort of contemporary to Marlborough generally. But the the Scanian War is uh, is one that's absolutely possible. Yeah. So basically, the the reason I, I wanted to do the Scanian War is because it is it is our kind of it, it's it's a war that was fought on well. Okay, now the Danes at the time would would uh, not agree with me but it was fought on swedish soil yeah so so okay. so therefore the great northern war was mainly happening kind of in you know what we today call germany poland you know russia and and belarus and, and ukraine but basically the scania was his interest me because he's fought in on swedish soil there is also the fact that it's not tricorns basically they had floppy hat and corpuses the army, so every little regiment has a different. Is there's in the Great Northern War they have a unif, what is called a, a one, uh, uniform type for the Swedes. Although it's different, but very often it's blue, and very often it's yellow yes. facings. But the uniforms yeah. during the Scania War is every regiment more or less has a different uniform. That appeals to me from the kind of from the spectacle. And this sounds weird, like you know, isn't just the warfare and so on. But also the fact that historically it is, it's it's a Swedish army that's kind of forgotten how good it was in the, in in, in if you wish in the Thirty Years' War, and it is a little bit so, of some of those uh, influential military leaders to reintroduce us. So, for example, during the Thirty Years' War, there was something that was known as the Swedish Manor. That was this attack, aggressive attack, that uh, Gustav Adolfus yeah. were using. When some of the military leadership reintroduces this way of fighting during the Scanian War, they call it the French manner, yeah, because the French obviously adopted okay. that and were using that, but the Swedes had forgotten that it was them perhaps who who influenced the <laughs> French, yeah. So so you you have this this uh, and to me it is that kind of missing link, and I'm just thinking that, well. If you look back to some of the projects on my blog, you can see that I very rarely do mainstream projects. Yeah, you know, uh, as I yeah. joked the other day with with someone on Twitter, is you know, I think it was Mike Siggins. I said, uh, you say uh, Normandy, I say you know, uh, Finnish continuation war, the Russian offensive. Uh, <laughs> uh, you say you know, France 1940. Uh, I say the Winter War. You know, in the sense that. But for me, those are perhaps more realistic. I mean, I have a lot of Swedish friends, and they play, you know, they play Americans or you know versus um, Germans, and that's great. And I have some of those armies yeah. as well. But for me, part of my exploration, uh, and I think a lot of people that I know here in the UK can can testify for that. They're very interested in periods, basically, because it has, you know, they might have had a, you know, a forefather or, or you know. A, 
a dad or a granddad that actually fought in these conflicts or someone in the family. Yeah. 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 So therefore, exactly. So therefore, when I explain that to them, then actually the fact that I'm interested in Scania War isn't so strange. It's just that it that's kind of my background, if you wish. I read about that and was inspired when I was young. But of course, you guys didn't because you were too busy worried about your own country, just as we were. You know, in that sense. So yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's, it's a very it's a cultural thing. Isn't it? Exactly, and it's a very unimportant war from a British perspective. For Sweden, of course, it is the story about how, you know, fighting on one of our land areas. But but I very rarely see it being done, you know, in, and I've never seen it being done in six mil, basically, because I think two reasons. First of all, uh, there are no models that have this kind of round floppy hats and that kind of uniform. So you have a, a lot of models that exist that have either the 30 years war type of uniform, and then you have the beginning of 18th century stuff. And of course, yeah. what happens is that this is really like a mix, so the, it's it's almost like the uniforms start use looking like they do in 18th century, but the hats are still the same. So basically, yes. basically what Peter has done is that for some of the ranges, uh, Peter Berry, sorry for Bacchus, he basically changed some of the 18th century ranges to have round hats. So so the the more or less the same sculpts, but he's now expanding the range like Peter always does, and he will add. Uh, some different headgear, which is a new stuff and, and totally new models. And then he will add, uh, because during this era is the change between flintlock uh, and matchlock are used by both sides. You know, some regiments have matchlock, some have flintlock. So you you need both guys, if you wish, that carry around a cartridge box, as well as you need these with this pre-made, uh, uh, you know, uh, for that used for the matchlock to have these things yes. hanging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so therefore... For me, it was a challenge because it's a new period. There are new models that Peter produced. They look brilliant. And, and uh, I basically have asked Peter Berry to to do this range for, I, I think, six, seven years. So it is, I'm very kind of much... So it's your fault? No, no. I think I think he always had that idea to do it. But, but I, I, you know, I think that at least he knew that one person would buy it. So hopefully he, some other people would do too. Yeah, the early reports seem very favourable, don't they? I yeah. think he's quite pleased yeah, so, with so, sales at the church. Exactly, so so I really think that... that uh, so that's the next thing I, I'm, I'm really into. And, and uh, so the first battle, of course. So funnily, there are three key battles I want to do. And the middle battle is the battle called Lund in Lund. And Lund is one of our two kind of uh, famous university towns in in. Sweden. Uh, I went yeah. to the other one, so uh, we have one up right. called Uppsala. But Lund, Lund has this uh, is this other old unit town, and uh, there was a battle there in 1676. It's 14 December, and it was snowy. So I, of course I've done okay. this snowy, which means if you remember what I told you before, that the two other battles they of course fought in summer. Uh, yes. So therefore, it means. Oh, I know what's coming there. <laughs> yeah, so it means that when I do the next battle, I have to redo all them all again. But uh, that won't upset Peter, though, will it? No, 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 and neither does it me either, because it, it means, you know, if if it means that I could either end it there, you know, that that era, I kind of hope not, but or, or I could pick up something else. It doesn't kind of mean that I'm, I kind of have to then start again to do it. But you know, given on the fact that I spent one evening and I did 
uh, eight squadrons of the 43 I need for the Danes, it's not going to take forever to do them anyway. So I, I think, you no, know, so, no. so I'm not too, too bother about that. But, but that's really kind of, so I hope, so my plan is to take that, something about the Scania war uh, to Joy of Six, not next year, because I really want to do that Fraustadt, but then perhaps take it the following year. Uh, and and fight those battles. Now Lund is much smaller than than uh, for example Poltava and some of the recent battles. And I I think it's trying to perhaps go back to some to put battles on the table that we can kind of get a reasonable game out of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it's although Poltava looked great and so on, it is it is enormous table, but it's not very practical as a convention game. So it became more like a you know, and, and we had a very busy day, me and Nick, talking to people. Nick talking about the battle and the rules, etc. So we still had a lot of feedback and interaction, but we actually didn't play. So when we had, for example, a table like Klissov, which was eight feet table, and so we played that, and we had a really cool time, and, and it was quite funny because we had a similar thing happen where a Polish side who basically flees from the battle, we, we had exactly the same happening in the battle. It wasn't something we had pre-arranged but it happened and then basically the, the the whole army then routed as a consequence so it was a more kind of a, a, a playable battle and i want to perhaps take it back to that i kind of showed the world now i can do a 16 feet mat yeah but i just yeah. kind of want to take it back to kind of where it started a little bit and and uh, it's also to keep my sanity back because this Poltava table this year because I, I i obviously i wish i could only kind of paint miniatures but i i have I have a, I have a kind of a professional commitments and so on, and I I, I work and I have quite a, a high octane or whatever they call it. That's a job in that sense. So I'm, yes. It has uh, this year been quite, and and that has to take some priorities. And I felt that I couldn't really give my, always my love to to the hobby. And and I think then it's when it's time to start kind of making it more flexible. And one way I can do that is by making my fixed commitment, which Joy of Six is making less yeah. onerous so if i if i would say next year i was going to do like i'm exaggerating now but i'll do waterloo in one to one yeah then i pro then yeah then i would feel that being a commitment and obligation that i would deliver there is no question of that if i said yes. so i would deliver it but it would obviously kill me yeah so yes yeah so therefore therefore it is not kind of a but but really so when it's virgin or not being a joy then uh you know it's it's you need to reassess. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. I haven't lost anything in it in that sense, but I just feel like that is the next step. And and what is good is, and it's back to this thing that I I think that most so I, I basically have seven eight tables that I I'm not ashamed to basically take down from the loft and just put out as they are. You know, just take the cobway away from them. Yeah, but it would be nice to kind of get up some of them to kind of better standard and. The, the risk, I guess, the only risk is I take this Fraustadt out is that I look at it and think, well, maybe I can do it on a mat instead of boards, yeah, and then I'm back into it. But uh, have to square one. Yeah, exactly. But but there you go. At least I will not change the year of time of the year, so I don't need to rebase. So, so I think yeah. that is. Well, I think there's an element also that where you were talking um, previously about. Um, if a newcomer to the hobby comes into a show like the Joy of Six, and they'll see your Poltava game on a 16-foot by 5-foot table, I'm sure they would be absolutely blown away 
but they'd think, oh, crikey, I'm not sure I can do that. I don't know. I wouldn't know where to start on that as yeah. a newcomer into the hobby. So those, and I think this is where some of those smaller games come in. Absolutely. Because yeah. they, they are the achievable, aren't they? They're, they're more achievable for the newcomer. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, a 16 foot by five foot game uh, serves many purposes for the veterans of the hobby to look at it. I think Mike Hobbs described it as the best six mil game he'd ever seen, and I, you know I would absolutely agree with him. Um, and then the newcomer that would come in would be blown away looking at it, but perhaps not know where to start if they wanted to recreate that themselves. So there's room for those smaller games as well, the eight by fives or whatever, the six by fours. Uh, to, to sit alongside and show the hobby, yeah, exactly, and, and that's and I think that is important. It's an important thing to do, especially for perhaps people who listen to this who kind of either stumbled upon this or, or perhaps been thinking about it. Is the fact that I think six millimeter has a, a great place in the hobby and it's a great to do many things with. And and if 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 you go to my blog and look I've, I've tried a few things there but it's a lot to see you know in in the six mil world of different people doing about it and you get some people who you know spend a lot of time on on doing it other people who perhaps spend less time on on you know developing if you what i call the interface between terrain and models etc which mm-hmm. kind of has become a little bit of an obsession of mine but actually more to create you know battle groups etc on a reasonably small size table and that's really where it also is uh, it's very useful to use to scale because you can still get that kind of immersion with the miniatures i i think if you use for example world war ii uh, miniatures and so on you have vehicles etc you, you you can kind of create some quite reasonably good looking scenarios at at you know higher level you know for me I, i'm i tried a little bit of dabbling in it, but I'm not sure I want to do like platoon level necessarily in six mil. It's possible and so on, but I'm quite happy to do that with my 15 mil mainly because I have so many of it. But also the yes. fact that I, I've done so. One of my my favorite kind of little projects was that I painted up this eighth army platoon in six mil, which I think is my kind of. It's very neat and very small, and it's a fully playable platoon in it. You can play. Uh, you know, chain of command with the rules as as they are yes. with it. I really like that, but it is it it's not maybe ideal, you know, in that sense. But uh, you you could kind of do it. But uh, but again, if you use that, uh, and this is quite important, is the fact that a lot of games are designed to be played on six by four tables, and yeah. four feet isn't the general width of a kitchen, sorry, a dining table. So my dining table I have here we have which is quite long but it is 88 centimeters and that is short of three feet yeah yes so for me if you can take for example a different scale than a normal six by four and you can kind of downsize it uh, you know uh, 25 percent take it down to four to three and you can do that for example by using six mil or you know uh, and this is back to the fact as i said that all we can we can use centimeter instead of inches. Well, that's not the that's quite a stupid way of limiting yourself, I think. And instead, to say that if my game is if I need a four feet deep table, and I have three feet, that means I only need to downsize it seventy to seventy five percent of it. Yeah. 
So that means yeah. that I can take 75% of an inch and I can mark it up on a little stick I have at home. And as I said before, it takes five minutes to do it. And I do it for me and one for you. And you know what? Now we are playing 75% inches, yeah? And that is very tricky conceptually for about one second when we do it. And then we have those sticks we use, yeah? So so it is, it is we don't need to kind of go down so drastic to use, you know what I mean? There's no holiness in that, but it's basically saying, and then suddenly you can say, well, okay, so if this is now designed for, you know, 60 millimeter frontage, well, 75% of that says 45 millimeter. And then I put my six, you know what I mean? It is, it's not difficult to do these things, you know? And I, I sometimes get these questions, oh, how did you change this and that to that game system? And I'm thinking, well, just simple logic. And it is when people say, oh, could you play this? Is this, uh, and people say, oh, this is a 10 mil game. And I'm thinking, what is 10 mil with it? And you read very often the rules and there is nothing in that game that, you know, there is no kind of rigorous academic, sorry, or, or technical research or whatever that has made all those distances only being applicable to a ground scale of 10 millimeter. Yeah. It's just what yeah, the yeah. author or whatever prefers to play with, yeah. And uh, so I just find that sometimes. And, and I think for a lot of people to say that if you want to try out 6 mil, you probably can try it out with most games you're already playing. You don't have to find. Because some yeah. people ask me, what's a good game for 6 millimeter? Well, it tends to be, you know, if you think it's a, if you like a good set of rules and you want to try 6 mil, there's a way to do that. You know, there's no reason you have to find, yeah. you know, rules that says they are a 6 millimeter game. If you like two fat lardis rules, can play with six millimeter miniatures, yeah. And so yeah. it's the key is to not limit yourself like that. Well, I, I think I, talk, I talked about this on Twitter a little bit, and I might have come across wrong when I said, for me, it's mindset. Um, it's the mindset of the player to um, say that this I'm going to play it in six mil, and I'll choose whichever rules I want to do, and I'll adapt that to. Uh, the scale, as you said, to rescale the the ruler yeah. that you're going to use or the the ground scale. Um, so, and and there's absolutely nothing to stop in somebody playing a Western skirmish on a 12 inch square tile um, using six mil cowboys that are regular miniatures sell. There's nothing to stop them. It it would be awkward, and I think you'd yeah. have to you, you need to get that mindset right as to what you're actually looking at. But if you want to do that, nobody is going to come and say you can't do that because that's your hobby and that's the way that you choose to do it. So um, I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that. I think you brought this up at the seminar, didn't you, at the Joy of Six, that I think people sometimes restrict themselves too much and think that Black Powder is purely for 28 mil or that Chain of Command is purely for 28 mil or 15 mil. Um, it, it's pure. It's down to the player, isn't it? And it's that mindset to get to adapt your mindset to what you want to do and what you want to represent. Exactly, and, and I wouldn't like anyone to kind of, well, feel that they need to limit themselves because of of, of kind of twenty eight millimeter being the rule set for this and that. Because I found often when I read, as I said, when you read the rules, there is nothing that makes them feel especially twenty eight mil. I think they're, you know, and and you know if if someone prefers uh, the look of a 28 millimeter figure that's not going to change just because i say this looks cool and this and that doesn't really matter i mean we we still kind of you know basically playing yes. with toy soldiers so i know it's a fantastic yeah. thing you know and and uh, so that's great and I, I i love watching 
nice 28 millimeter miniatures and i i'm really happy to see some of the stuff back again where people actually make it work and so on but i it's just sometimes for me difficult to get the immersion on very big battles with with yeah. the bigger scales you know especially if it's they are not grand mm -hmm. big tables here yeah. it actually is you know for me it can tend to the feeling i get looking and playing them is a little bit like it is a it's a skirmish and then you know there is a title of a big battle that i know had forty thousand men on the side and i'm thinking this feels a little bit like too and there's no it's just how i feel you know just like the same that they say look i'm i can't see your miniatures you know that's fine you know but I don't have a problem. It's not the debate. I'm not interested in debate. You know, it's like you might like a certain pop group and I like another one. There's, you know, more than having a little bit fun over a beer or two and talking about whether Radiohead is better than the Beatles. You know, we can do that for a while. But actually, it's not serious. It's not important you know, uh, to anyone whether, you know, whether one group is better than the other. And I feel sometimes, I have friends, who, oh, I am a 28mm player, and I say, fair enough, you know, why I just limit yourself, yeah? So when I was younger, I just listened to death metal, and I wouldn't listen to anything else, and that was a big regret. But it's been great now when I have Spotify to explore so much other music yeah, genres. Yeah, there's a lot more out there, isn't there? And I think, you know, yeah, great to wake up from that kind of illusion sometimes. I don't know. Yeah, you I know. think that people... Um, People do uh, identify themselves um, as representing one particular scale. Um, and that isn't what this podcast is about. It's not about representing six mil to the exclusion of everything else. It's really here to explore what six mil can do and to perhaps open good, people's yeah. eyes um, as to what the possibilities are for, for, the, for, the, uh, for the scale. So from the sort of game that you do, um, the 16 foot by 5 foot extravaganza used, used to, to do, do yeah or, or, or potentially will do again um, yeah uh, or right down to that small um, game that you could play on a tea tray almost I guess um, in, in your lounge but well we've done that and, and, and one of the great things so I, I don't know I mean we picked it up this weekend again or, or my, my son did uh, we did a little board and it's 40 by 20 centimeters we play with six uh, millimeter scale cars there maybe like kind of it's called uh, road wolf i think the rules and it's a free set on the net you can download it uh, yeah road wolf is called and it's basically a there are some other games with the same uh, thing but we did a set of uh, i bought a set of six millimeter car from cars from irregular miniatures and from uh, uh, what's it called, uh, Microworld, and a few other uh, producers. And uh, I did a set of cars, you know, different factions. You know, you had the kind of uh, rusty cars, and and then you had the police interceptor. And then I had one was the gangsters, I painted them kind of greenish, and a few other kind of factions. And we we played this game with my son, uh, and and it's great because basically what what it is that you have. The board doesn't, the terrain moves rather than the board. So basically, it, it's a long strip of road, and, and it has that feeling you have in, in the Mad Max movies. So this is post-apocalyptic. So basically, you travel on these endless roads, and uh, you, tr you have different missions to kind of basically get rid of each other on that road. But uh, they picked it up, you know, played it this weekend. Uh, it was 
is nice little thing and and literally when the board is 20 by 40 um, centimeters which is basically what, what is that six by six by 12 inches uh, kind of size of, of a board you know you can basically have it anywhere yeah and uh, well exactly so so and we one year we we took our six millimeter uh, I have some French Indian war stuff and took it on holiday and you basically Played, uh, you know, games, you know, that normally you will, will be able to play on six by four tables. We just miniaturize, so it, it has some some great uses. I mean, previously try to take a game with us when we go on holiday and play wherever we are. And I've used flats in the past because I like going on holiday and learn a new rule system. Yeah, because I I need a little bit of time and to see it. I'm more visual person than I can't. And as I said on the seminar for Joy of Six, I I kind of a little bit kind of cheekily, but you know, when when people totally rule out, sorry for the pun, rule sets by the half an hour browse they they make by reading it, yeah. I think it's that, to be honest, is, is and, uh, and I know we've not thought about, but I think that is a shitty attitude, sorry for the sentence, but to flip through a rule book for 30 minutes and say it's rubbish, yeah. I think it's better to say I haven't actually played them and I have no view, but it, it's, you know, it, it is when you, I've found that a lot of rule sets uh, actually are far better than they read, and uh, and uh, and that's what I talked about. This cult of the cult. If you need to, what I mean with that is, if you have a good rule set, you need to kind of try to tell people about it and tell them how it works. And some companies are better than others in, at uh, rolling those ideas out. And I think uh, I think that's that's what I'm kind of. Uh, so basically, on holidays, we, we in the past take. I've, taken a rule set or two with me and some flats i have a few flats i've done which is you know print out and and on on uh, uh what's it called like adhesive paper you yeah. know like labels yes and then i stick them on on bases so oh, basically they, they're just flats of troops and so on and i and you can easily put them in a little kind of box and then you take the rule sets and a few dice with you and it's great on holidays but but now, last few years when we've done this six mil skirmish, we take a few of those with us. Gives a little bit bigger, better immersion as well. That sounds fantastic. I may nick that idea and try that next year. Yeah, do that exactly. But, but because for me it is because really on holidays where you know when you have children and so on, you kind of uh, I'm, you know very rarely spend my holidays being in nightclubs and so on late so it tends to be you sit on a kind of on a balcony watching over some seas and so on and it's very nice and inspirational to read a book or to have yes. a few bases and try out some manure it sounds really sad but actually i really enjoy that you know there's it's, nothing sad about that whatsoever pair i'm i'm with you <laughs> yeah so uh, so 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 that's what kind of i found with it as well that it has you know so it, it you don't need to and I, and I think you don't need to do this massive stuff and for example, I mean, talking about Mike Hobbs, Mike Hobbs on Twitter recently have shown a, a few kind of sci-fi armies that he's done. And those are brilliant, you know, in six mil and, and you know, relatively easy to do and get kind of, you know, uh, you don't need to kind of spend three days on, on each space marine, you know. You actually can create that table and get that kind of same level of immersion actually and uh, a little bit differently, you know, by using the smaller scales and and still get the same feelings. And back again, it depends what you want to see. I mean, I, I think 
some of the space marinas he painted on Twitter. They're absolutely brilliant, yeah. But I, mm. it's back again to this fact that I don't have the 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 the, the, the talent. This is the wrong word. I think it's a lot of these guys have the talent, but also they have the skill. They have practiced really hard and and some amazing stuff, yeah. And time as well, I think, Penny. I think that's, exactly, that's exactly, exactly. Yeah. But again, if you like kind of mass effect, which I do, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a, a little bit. I actually tried my talking about 28 mil. I tried my first. I had my first uh, splash of contrast earlier today. Ah, tell us all about that. Well, um, I don't think I have the. I I, I should, probably should uh, study how you do it somewhere. Uh, I kind of felt just like. I put on a wash, yeah. So uh, maybe I just have to try to. I bought a full set uh, for my son, you know. So he has yeah. basically bought him. A, he started getting interest. So I bought him a full set, but yeah, I, I need to try a few. Basically, I got the set sent to me, but they run out of some of the most popular colors. So some of them are apparently better than others. But I, uh, you know, I can I can see it. But it's just what I tried today. I I think I need to study what the idea is. I splashed on. Maybe too much, I don't know, but I think that's what you're supposed to do. But I, I don't know. But I'm, I'm not sure. It, I've seen some people try it on six mil, but I, I kind of, I'm not sure. I even want to try. I think I'll stick to my, my method. Is quite quick. Yes. And but it's based on, uh, on uh, if you wish, contrast between the, the under, what is under, rather than the the color itself. You know. So I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not sure it is the answer. But maybe someone will kind of. Surprise me or convince me. Maybe if I painted some other type of, uh, of miniatures rather than these, if it was kind of more one color miniatures, maybe it would be better. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm of the same opinion, pair. To be honest, I'm not. I'm not sure it adds anything to what I do already, um, or or would increase the speed of what I do already. And 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 as I get older, I, I sort of move away from being. I find I'm less fussy uh, about what color goes where and what buttons should be which color. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, and you talked earlier on about which green to use for whatever. Yeah. If it's a green to me, that that'll do. Certainly in six mil, um, for the very, I'm sat in my office here, surrounded by paint, and yeah. I must have twenty different pots of green. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure. There's probably only two or three of them that I will use on a regular basis because a green is a green is a green to me. So, um, yeah, the contrast paint. I'm I'm not quite. Sh I don't want to be grumpy. I feel like I'm being a bit grumpy, but I don't want to be grumpy. But I'm not quite sure. It's it's for my type of painting, and I think certainly for your son and uh, for the the younger kids out there who are 13 or 14 just getting into the hobby then it's going to allow them to paint fi figures that look okay and they'll get them on the table and play with them and have that joy of playing with painted figures rather than grey plastic. Well, exa exactly, exactly. So so I, I, I think, but what I wanted to do was to give it a go so I can kind of teach him to do it because I think I think one of the things that I'm bothered about in the sense of even if you're 13 is the fact that it seems to require a little bit of control of the brush, yeah? Mm. Uh, that I'm not sure you have yet, because for me it is one of the things I've, I've realized with painting. If we talk about six millimeter, is the fact that I there's two things. First of all, it's a little bit like uh, before you. Uh, I, I used to go and, and watch some slalom races when I was younger, and some so the the 
the skier used to kind of walk down sometimes you used to see them walking down the the pist yeah and and getting a feel for it and understanding it and i find that when you paint miniatures in six mil because you have to repetitively paint so let's say if i have uh one sorry it's let's say 200 bases of russians on the table that is that is a lot of those miniatures are exactly the same miniature you basically learn how to almost how to how well you, you kind of get almost a muscle memory of painting that miniature so for example when peter berry kindly makes his uh, new makes of certain types of I, I it takes me a little while to learn how to paint that new miniatures uh, and so therefore what i'm saying though is that when it comes to this control of a wash or something like that it is because obviously it spreads over on other areas here. So I'm, I'm kind of, that's what I'm mindful was compared to, for example, let's say that you use a, a wash in a traditional sense and then maybe dry brush or, or paint first, etc. So I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, uh, so, so I, I think that it's not just to put this contrast paint in front of a 13 year old and let them go off. I think it is, so what I wanted to do was to kind of learn a little bit how to use them so I could show him first as well, but maybe Maybe I just have let him play around, but I'm just I'm not sure necessarily is the the easiest way to start either. So I'm 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 I will I will let you know what I feel about that. That's that's really interesting. I've not actually heard anybody um, come up with that before, but you're you're absolutely right because um, the the um, examples that I've seen. So you might need to paint the trousers one color or and the, the jacket one color and then the helmet another color and then the skin. And you're right, you can't just literally slap the whole the first color over the whole figure and then move on to the next color, can you? Because you've got you've almost got to stay within the lines. It's almost like painting by numbers. Yeah, and also I think if you exactly and if you slap on too much, then of course it's going to kind of go all over the place. So diff, different when you have you paint first your block and then you wash it yeah. yeah it doesn't matter if you if you kind of liquid it part goes all over because that's what you want yeah so so it, it, we'll see I, i'm put a brush in his hand i mean we, we used to we painted some star wars rebels and we basically there was a guy on the net and i've i've talked about this before but he used kind of desert yellowish base on figures and then he used the inks on top yeah and uh that created quite similar things, you know, it creates, you know, so, so instead of the washes or the inks, so they're quite kind of strong colors. And that created similar effects to what I think this is this is doing. But what I've seen, so what I'm saying is, what I've seen is the contrast paint, the best results I think I've seen is where people said they used that and then they have highlighted. And yeah. so I think, I think it, if you learn how to use it, I think it might be a time saver in that sense and so on. But I, so, so anyway, I'm, I've, as I said, I am, literally a virgin about it I, I splash on paint on a on a miniature today but i i don't want to i thought I'll, I'll i'll try a little bit more before i share my experiences because i, I just yeah it didn't look very good to be honest uh, yeah. well it, absolutely my my experience as well pair i was um i was underwhelmed um and whether that was my skill of using the paint or it was a limitation of the paint itself but no no i i, I think i think I think uh, without, you know, I haven't seen, but in my case, it is, it was my skill because I, I didn't really kind of how you done it. I, I, 
I didn't do how you do it. I just I'll splash it on and see what happens. And it seems like well, to me, it seems yeah. like I have a wash that probably does the same. But but look, there's a lot yes. of new colors, and I've seen a lot of great stuff and so on. And I just kind of I, I think again, it's it, it's back to this thing that. Uh, I used to play guitar when I was younger and you could sit there and grind that guitar for ages but if I tried to learn to play uh, piano a few years back but I kind of gave up because I, I just didn't have that time and that patience anymore so I think if I stick this in my son's hand he, he has the kind of time and that patience to kind of relearn and I think for me I'm kind of already a lost cause I guess and I'm doing it the way I've always done it so it, it's I think it's more me and, and sorry and my attitude rather than anything else yeah and, and and that's how i feel and as i don't want to be grumpy about it there will be people out there that yeah but what i think would be fascinating and i'm waiting for and i've seen there's some uh some guys on twitter have used it for some world war ii stuff and so on and i'm kind of thinking whether uh because end of the day that's my son is very much into world war ii and so on and to maybe to use some of the paints and so on i, I the only thing that he kind of tends to give a quite a, a pale tone to it and I, I'm kind of it it's I think it will some of those paints would probably work really great for things like eighth army you know in the desert and things like that because it will have that kind of look to it but never mind look um we already talked too too much about this subject I guess because it I didn't plan about this but it would just happen I, I sat there and had a figure while I was waiting for something else so 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 if i ask you then what, what about yourself then your project you're planning a world war one uh project for uh, have you booked yourself yes for six? have you told peter you're taking i've, it I've told peter but he he did say yeah. that the forms go out in january i think um and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. to be quick about it but I'm i'm hoping with um uh, once God's Own Scale becomes the number one podcast on iTunes and promote exactly, I think it's already is, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? It's really, well within the six mil wargaming market on iTunes. It may well be it's quite yeah, a, yeah, a small yeah. uh, a small crowd on that. Well, sometimes best in class is better yes. than, than yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so that that is my uh, sort of twelve month uh, vanity project, I guess. Where I've got I've got. You were talking about um, people who've got uh, familial links back to some of these conflicts. And I, I've got a, a family member that was um, at the Battle of the Somme survived. Uh, All right, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the particular sector of the, the, the Somme at Tietval, uh, where the, the huge memorial is, um, that, that's going to be my thing. It's only going to be six by four or six by five at the very most. I'm, I'm, yep. I am... Um, not letting my megalomaniac tendencies take over just yet. This is my sort of dipping my toe into the ocean of of uh, what these games could be at the Joy of Six. But um, yeah, that, that's certainly my my aim for for next year. I'm, I'm slowly accruing uh, the figures. Um, I mean, in fact, I've, I've I've nearly got all the figures actually. Uh, you need a lot for it, though. Yeah, yeah. It's not too. It's not too bad. It's not too bad actually. Um, it's three divisions of British and one division of uh of germans um yep. using the great war spearhead rules um okay yeah uh, so it's it's not a massive commitment but what I, what i am interested in doing is getting the uh the scenery right uh and this is your fault pair absolutely i'm laying the blame at your door but i want i want i want the scenery to look as as good as i can possibly get it between now and uh july next year if it's in july next year i want I want to have that attention to detail that you put into 
into your games um so those vignettes that you do or a, a particular piece of the battlefield so the trenches for example are, are clearly a very important part of that but also the fact that the ground rises from the british lines up to the the german lines so there's got to be that elevation as well um, so how are you going to do that then are you uh, i'm not entirely sure just yet um i'm going to uh i'm thinking about using um i don't know if you've seen these the uh the i'm not entirely sure what they're used for but there's if you if you go to halfords or sort of a, a motor uh spares shop there's some large three foot square uh tiles i think they're perhaps for workshop floors or something like that and they've almost they've got a, almost a jigsaw appearance to them they yeah, yeah, yeah. um the guys at little wars tv i don't know if you've seen what they they do um on youtube there's a, a channel called little wars tv uh whose production values for a youtube channel are absolutely incredible where they're refighting uh historical battles from all sorts of periods but they they use this underneath a cloth um and they can generate the uh, the various elevations uh without having the stepped look to them they, they'll put a they'll put the um the, these uh they're almost like a rubber tile that are about an inch thick uh down and cut the contours to suit the battlefield and then they'll put a heavy blanket almost over the top of that to smooth out the contours and then the actual battle map that they come up with goes on top of that so you get this sort of rolling undulating look to the field so i'm going to experiment with that um yeah, yeah. Uh, over, over the next few months um and th there's little things like um they have trees for the, for their trees they'll instead of having the tree on a stand they'll put a pin through the trunk of the tree whatever the material that is and you can then stick that into this rubber material so you can have trees on a hillside that stand uh upright as opposed to sort of leaning over because yeah. you've got a tree on a separate base that then can't conform to the uh, the contour so there's there's little things like that little details like that that i want to work out um, the only thing i want to warn you for though already yeah, yeah. is the fact that at joyo 6 you go to let in at eight o'clock in the morning and then the show starts at 10 yeah so you need to be able to put it up and i'm just thinking if you're going to stick down 200 of those trees <laughs> you might already you might be there until four o'clock in the afternoon yeah where's the voice of experience <laughs> oh, no 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 but i'm just saying so for example i'll tell you this Poltava table yeah it literally took me from eight o'clock to ten thirty, more or less i would say because i cheated a little uh not to set it up 10 o'clock it was ready and looked ready but it was small stuff still to do yeah and i never kind of get that right and because uh, my colleagues nick at all we kind of meet up for the show we, we live so far from each other and they come and you know and help me on the day but basically it's not always that they can reasonably do it you know to help me with it you know so it's it's good to kind of have a plan for that that's my kind of experience with it and especially when you get into the nitty-gritty you know so the ideally would be you know to just come with a and that's why i started you know some of these uh mats i'm doing yeah because basically yeah. roll it up and it's all in there so i i, I the road system is in it already etc and also the fact that it rolls now yeah so some of this and, and he actually it, it kind of tends to look better but 
it's then of course the fact is now you created a 16 feet mat that is not very flexible so you have kind of the road system for Poltava will be on it forever yeah and it might not be always useful so it's back to that again whether you want to kind of you know and and it's also to showcase for example so i mean uh robert dunlop who done the table next to me this year i met yeah. on a few occasions he does world war one stuff the long table he had now i've forgotten what his battle was called it was a 1950 there you go there you go thanks his tables of uh I really enjoy him and, and his crew. They are fantastic. They they set up different tables and they have all the kind of kit to set it up. So all theirs is kind of, and that that is a big job, but they, they all know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. And they, so I'm always kind of jealous when they come up because they have a big bunch. Yeah. And they all set it up quickly and it's so much on their table going on, you know, but they kind of all know what they're doing and it's brilliant. Yeah. And, and, uh, but that is a different kind of game than mine in the sense that they their stuff is all kind of modular in that sense that you can kind of then next time they kind of use the same map but they set it up differently so it's kind of more clever in that way and it's more practical you know, and it's more like something you could have at home there's a lot know? of lay on terrain there isn't there that exactly yeah, yeah, yeah the fields yeah. and the, the trenches and roads and exactly uh, uh, to be honest for the the song game it's it's going to be um it it is a vanity project for me to do to and and that's why i'm going to do it over a 12 month period to give myself the time to do it properly and to experiment with various things but it will absolutely be uh, a map that is one use only for uh, for the game i'm going to play so there will be the roads painted yeah, yeah, on yeah. there the fields i've got a um i've got a google earth image of the field as it is now um and i appreciate that the field boundaries may have changed in the last hundred years, but it gives an approximation of where the villages are in relation to each other, where the farms are, uh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the boundaries of the woodland and the the, uh, the river that flew uh, flowed uh, across the uh, uh, the eastern, uh, sorry, the western part of the battlefield. But uh, yeah, the, I mean, there's very there's various ways of doing it, isn't there? But I, I shall certainly take. The advice of uh, thinking about those individual trees and uh, and come up, trying to come up with a suitable solution for that. Yeah, exactly. But but it is. I mean, it it will look brilliant that solution because it will kind of flow naturally over those yeah. hills, and it will look perfect. You know, in that sense. So it's just it's just I'm just just the fact that if you have to stick them all down, it might not be practical. <laughs> and then also, what happens to help me? Yeah. So that that might help. <laughs> Yeah, we might bring on two then, yeah, if you have a lot of trees. No, but that sounds great. So I think those are the kind of key things. And it's just setting it all up. I normally get tired of it. Um, for, so you're going to have, is it going to be boards? You're going to make boards for it? or? Uh, I yeah, I don't think, I, I'm undecided, to be honest, at the moment. I'm, I'm in the early sort of stages of research. Um Boards would be a good option, um, but there's the practicalities of that, isn't there, of, of carrying them around. And I think yeah. you've found that, haven't you, where you've transferred from using boards through to uh, to the mats. Yeah, the, the problem with the mat, though, is that the material I'm using, it, it's difficult to make make it uh, to to use to kind of have stuff under and make hills, uh, yeah, okay. unless they are very kind of long, you know, like, if they're very steep, it's difficult. Yeah. yeah. So you can create a little bit of long stuff. So I put some stuff under. So that's one of the disadvantages. Yeah. 
that's why I had this modular kind of five feet hill on yeah. it, yeah, which I put on top. But it, but it is, that's one drawback. But I w a challenge I would like to do one day is to see how thick I could make the actual paste on top. Because if you could do a trench system in the mat, yeah, yeah that would be cool. You know, to actually kind of carve it in. So if you had, let's say, you had a, uh, you know, half half a centimeter kind of depth on that acrylic, but you would make a very heavy mat. Yeah, yeah, yeah it would. But but you know something like that. But then you would actually just roll it out, and your trench system is just there on your mat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've I've gone for the um, the time cast um, latex trenches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think Robert actually Robert Dunlop actually commissioned originally when he was putting on one of his mega uh, games a few years ago, uh, and they are lovely from Timecast. Um, but I need to look at, because I did think about that. The fact that they will stand proud of the the mat and they they aren't sort of actually sunken into the into the plane surface if you like, but there has to be compromises somewhere, doesn't there? I think between uh, the realism and sort of a railway model layout, if you like, yeah. um, and something that not only you can play on but also can transport and um, get to and from and and set up in time at the show but I'll, I'll be blogging about it and i'll certainly talk about it on on future episodes of this but um I'm, i am really looking forward to it it's a it's a new it's a renewal of passion for the hobby that i've i think i've probably been stale in for some considerable time now where i've not looked to innovate my own game in i've just sort of trod water yeah, yeah. um and I've enjoyed it. I've, you know, I've, I've got a lot out. Of it. I've been in the hobby for 35 years, probably, um, and seen many trends and many uh, fads come along, uh, come and go. And certain companies have, have rose to prominence and faded away and scales and periods, etc. But yeah. uh, this this for me now is is uh, I want to be recreating some real battles from history, not just uh set up two thousand point armies on the opposite side of a six by four and and uh play a, a fictitious battle i want to be i want i am passionate about history uh as well as the gaming yeah, yeah. so yeah. i want to be sort of uh, diving into that a bit more and um there's there are there's lots of inspiration out there across the inter internet um i don't you know I don't want to embarrass you, Pear, but you've certainly been uh, a, a big part of that. No, but that's that's, that's great because you know, uh, as I say, and I kind of uh, and I mean it, I, I don't do what I do for you and others. I do it for myself. But I'm really happy that someone kind of because, of course, you know, I wouldn't put it out there if I, I didn't do it for others. To be honest, I mean, I would just sit for myself. But I think it's great, you know, uh, and and for me, it is that does. That that means that I kind of paid back some of the stuff because there were others who done the same for me, and I I think that's how we kind of keep a hobby kind of going. It can't just be what what the kind of mainstream do because I wouldn't have done Scornian War if it was the mainstream. Yeah, you know, it's it's not. No. There isn't a specific rule set for it, or there isn't this and that. But that kind of challenged me even more. Yeah, I mean, I have some projects. I'm I'm doing this. Uh, Sweden, Sweden in in World War Two, you know, and people say, oh, I get this occasionally. Well, Sweden wasn't part of the world, and I, or and I, you know, 
yeah, thanks for letting me know. I'm the first to know that, you know, so it's not it's not news here. I'm just doing it because I can, yeah. And uh, yeah, it is yeah. to exploring a little bit and the fact that one of the potential plans that the Germans had, of course, they had plans for everything. So it doesn't mean that it would even be likely to happen, was, but basically it would be an invasion force going through the place I grew up and the place where I was born. So therefore, that's enough reason to kind of do something about it. And uh, so, so again, it is that that side of things. Uh, just a little thought on, on, I've always thought in trenches in six millimeter, and, and I know this is, is the fact that, uh, and this is megalomania again, but you, you have either a unit is in the trenches or is advancing up from the trenches, yeah, in, in yeah. a simplistic way. And I was thinking about a few years back of doing it, and if I would do, so I would do a trench set, but then you could replace parts of that trench with a trench with soldiers in. So you basically, you based yeah. your soldiers in a trench and that could be put mm. in that trench. And then when they kind of advance, if you've up over the, you know, in a, in a true kind of black adder fashion over the, out from the trench, you had yeah. a base where they were out of that trench. But then I looked into that on a yeah. small battle and it was going to create quite a big effect, uh, but quite a big amount of figures to paint as well. And, and then it will practicalities what then happens when they are attacked in the trench. You do one uh, base now under attack in the trench. You end up with this, if you wish, where you change just these different sets. But I, I never did anything more with it. I think one of the things, and and this comes back to the compromise side of things, is I'm not entirely sure how I feel about. So, so the the World War One figures will be based on a three centimeter yep. square base with three or four figures on it. That's the that's the standard for the Great War spearhead rules, um, but to represent the unit in the trenches, um, you you essentially just put that base on top of the trench, uh, which which um, uh, ruins that suspension of of belief, if you like, that immersion for me. And the the thing I thought about was uh, not doing this for the whole set of trenches, or for every unit, but to have so use Peter's figures and almost cut them in half um, so that they can, the, the top, so it's just the top half of the figure uh, poking out of the top of this trench, if you like, uh, just as a representation of yeah. a unit inside the trench. I'm not sure how that will work. I don't know if, even if it will work, but that, that was one of the things that I was thinking with these time crest trenches, which are quite shallow. I think yeah. they're probably only three or four millimeter deep. Um, but the, the the very complex trench systems with the the sort of zigzag uh, shape to them, if you like, um, that you see from the aerial photographs from the period. But if I could somehow get some representation of troops actually inside the trench by cutting the figure in half, uh, putting it on a very thin strip, uh, basing three or four on a very thin strip, uh, and and actually sitting them inside the trench then that might satisfy my immersion into the game as opposed to putting a square base on top uh, that sits proud of the trench. I'm, I'm not quite sure how that will work yet, but yeah. that's one idea. But, uh, yeah, so, so exper experimentation, and that's why I've given it a 12-month uh, lead-in time so I can try these various things and, uh, and enjoy the project as well. So I'm under no pressure at the moment, come Christmas, then... I might start to feel some pressure if I've not done anything yet, but um, I, I want to take my time with it and enjoy the process of the research, 
the painting, the modeling, uh, and the overall look of how the game I'll, uh, I'll come across on the day. But it's it's my first foray into this, so I'm where you were, sort of, um, what, 10 years ago, whatever it was. Um, I, I'm at that sort of beginning of the Well, journey. Well, good luck with it. And I, I mean, so, yeah, I know about them, you say about the immersion and so on, but if you look at Robert's ta- tables, we're using those... Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, the, the trenches, trenches you are using. It looks. It looks. I great, think it's you know? amazing. There's a, the, he did the whole of the Somme, didn't he? I think two or three years yeah. ago on a twenty odd foot table. And there's a photo from um, the mezzanine level yeah, at, at the old venue, looking down, and it just looks incredible. It really is amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he's a huge inspiration to me as well. I know he had something to do with the the writing of Great War Spearhead 2. And uh, he's a huge advocate of the First World War in 6 mil. So, um, but this will be my my version and my interpretation and my approach to the game, if you like, as opposed to copying anybody. It's, it's about being inspired by other people, but not necessarily exactly. copying what they do. So I'll, I'll see how it goes. It's, 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 a, it's going to be a, a long project, I think. That sounds great. Uh, no, I'm looking forward to that. I hope you're going to share your journey with us. You know, yes, and, absolutely. And, uh, It'll be on the blog, and uh, I'll talk about it on here, uh, and on the Twitters as well. And I might, I might need somebody to give me a kick up the backside as well. When uh... yeah, well, well, I can do that. I'm quite quite good at that actually. So uh, yeah, if you need one, I'll I'll, I'll happily <laughs> kick. <them, yeah. laughs> kind of you, fair. Right. Okay. I I think. Um, We've been talking for some considerable time now. It's uh, approaching uh, the wee small hours of the morning, as uh, we anticipated. Um, exactly. Yeah, I think the the, the the first post is soon here. Yeah, I think. <laughs> yes. There may be a, 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 a cockerel uh, crowing uh, very soon outside the window. Um, Pear, uh, yeah. thanks so much for giving up your evening uh, to talk to me and... Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, sir, and uh, I'm really happy and delighted with with this initiative yeah. you've taken. And uh, I think you know if if you want to talk about something else uh, and and you have the time, then please let me know and I'll come on. And uh, I think there's a lot of subjects you can cover and so on. And I think there's a lot of people out there you can kind of contact and so on. But if you want to talk about some, I don't know review or, or whatever of some other area part of the scale i'm, I'm more than happy well I, I'd, I'd, be honored, so I'd, happy I'd be honored i'd be honored if uh, if you give up more time absolutely that's um yeah no 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 problem at all I, it's 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 close to my heart as well and I, I don't mind you know having a chat so and on I, I kind of at times thought about doing something similar perhaps not just for six millimeter scale and so on but it, it's back to this thing where i it's another commitment and so on, but if it's someone else kind of pulling it, I'm, I'm quite happy to join in every now and then for a pint or oh, two. That, that, that would be sense. brilliant. If um, I could get you as a sort of semi-regular second chair on the podcast, that would be amazing. But uh, Yeah, whatever, whatever yeah. mate. You yeah. you just, just, just uh, you, you let this kind of settle in and, and you run it and then come back to me when you kind of, when, when you decide how you want to do it and, and you might find me... Uh, amenable or whatever they call it. right okay Perth, uh, once again thanks very much and uh, thank you as well, yeah. and uh, we'll speak to you soon and uh, have a have a good holiday as cheers, well, yeah. yes thank you cheers, cheers. thanks
Hello, welcome back. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That was an absolutely fascinating uh, chat with Pear. And uh, once again, I'd like to thank him for taking uh, the time out of his evening to spend with me and uh, to uh, give us that insight into his uh, his process of putting on these fantastic games and his philosophy around six mil gaming and gaming in general. It was um, it was a real pleasure. So that will close out episode one. Um, just as a, a little side note, I did have one or two, or actually three recordings um, that I made at the Joe's Six show um, where I'd interviewed two or three people. Um, unfortunately, the quality of those was pretty poor um, once I came to editing and uh, putting this episode together. But fear not for those uh, concerned, um, I shall be making contact and dedicating uh, an episode to each of you in turn. So um, that will come over the next uh, few weeks or a couple of months or so. Um, so we can uh, get your uh, opinions and thoughts on gaming and the Joe Six and uh, your own approach. So I do apologize um, to the people, I shan't name them, but um, I do apologize for taking uh, a few minutes out of your day at the Joe Six and actually nothing coming from that. Um, I do hope to uh, improve the equipment which I'm using uh, to manage this podcast, uh, particularly a mobile recorder. So I could do uh, remote recordings uh, that I can then feed back into uh, the podcast. Um, but everything in time, um, the podcast is still being developed and the, the what it is I want to achieve with this. But it's I'm really enjoying it, and as I've said at the start of the podcast, I can't thank people enough who've been enthusiastic about it and have been following me on Twitter, uh, subscribing to the podcast and uh, downloading uh, that first episode. I hope that this um, this episode uh, that you've just listened to um, has been worthwhile. It's a lengthy one, over two hours. But I hope you agree it was well worth the effort and hopefully it's accompanied you as you've either commuted to work or, or sat for an evening's painting. I'd be interested to know how much painting you've got done whilst you've listened to this podcast. That'd be really interesting. Uh, feed that back onto Twitter to me. That would be uh, really good. OK, so I shall sign off now for episode one of God's Own Scale. Um, I'll be back in probably three or four weeks or so. I'm actually on holiday now for a couple of weeks uh, and then I'll need to set up the next interview and uh, the next episode uh, and sort out the content for that. So until then, play nice.
to concerts down at Kew. Some compliments and dressed in blue. Had to hear Lady Lee, who had turned 83, sing all the old, old songs she knew. Then she made a speech and said, I look upon you boys with pride. And for what you've done, I'm going to kiss each one. Then they all grabbed their sticks and cried. Goodbye, goodbye. Where's the dear baby dear from your eye? Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know. I'll be because I get to go. Don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. Oh, I said, dear, baby, dear, from your eyes. 